This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 31, covering Open the Ultimate Gate 2012 from the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida on March 30th, 2012. Remember, it's the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on our own dedicated feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to Red Circle. You just click the button there. You can do a one-time or recurring donation. Not No obligation whatsoever, BB. Certainly appreciated. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined, as always, by Kay Slow. And joined by special guests from the Pro Wrestling Torch and Pro Wrestling Paradise. It is Alan Forel. And Alan, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Mike and Case. Great to talk to you guys both again. I'm trying to think, I... I know we've talked individually uh, many times each, Mike. You were very recently on my show. Case, I think uh, we'll be getting you on very soon, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I'm not sure if I've ever talked to you both at the same time on on audio, unless I'm forgetting something obvious, am I? I don't remember anything, Case, do you? No, I don't. I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't think the three of us have done a show together, and maybe that's why I was so excited for today's show. I'm really looking forward to this. My God, what a triumvirate assembled here! This is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be some premium audio for for the world of the wrestling internet to uh, indulge in over the the upcoming well, maybe not for you guys, but for us here, the upcoming bank holiday weekend in in Ireland. Well, this will probably be coming out right before the election in the United States, so maybe it's a salve there as well. So it actually works hey, both ways, I think. Tell me about this. I, I, give me your opinion on this, guys. I uh, um, So uh, I decided I have like loads of, um, uh, because we're over here in Europe where we have like lots of uh, vacation days and uh, annual leave days and all that kind of stuff that you guys are just get deprived of over there in the U.S., um, I have an ample amount this year uh, still to take because of one, I had a bunch rolled from last year. Um, like there's supposed to be like a maximum of three that you can roll, but I had like 11 um, that I had left over because I was off for like all of November and December when I had hospital stuff going on. And they just rolled all those days into this year. So I started this year with a whole load of days and I haven't used that many because they're, I had to cancel like three trips out of the country that we were planning on doing because of the pandemic. And so, yeah, having used a bunch of days, I've kind of just taken time off here and there to just kind of do nothing. And I've decided to take all of the first week of November off to follow 
in detail your lovely election. How about that? What do you think of that as a decision? Bad idea, Alan. Don't do it. It's not good. <laughs> it's done. It's done. It's been signed off. It was. Oh, jeez. It, it's gonna be. It's gonna be a lovely week of me staying up until the wee hours of the morning here in Ireland and uh, waking up at uh, noon every day. I think. I'm already, I, I mean, I've already voted. I have done my civic duty. Now I'm looking to go underground for about the next <laughs> month and a half. Because whatever happens, I am not looking forward to the fallout of it. So I, I commend you in a way, Alan, because I am trying to do the opposite right now. Yeah, I, I have to say that the idea of doing that, maybe just because we live in this, I'm like... I. I mean, like, all the power to you doing this. I mean, <laughs> I, it, it's something that, like, living through the thick of it and just, like, on this, like, I can't, like, cross my mind. But also I'm imagining, uh, how familiar are you with both the Electoral College and the various voted voting policies in the United States? Because I imagine it's going to be, like, a huge, like, full force. Like, so why does Nebraska have individual electoral votes but 48 other states don't? I'm, I'm like, learning. I've, I've learned a bit more over the last couple of uh, elections. I know in, uh, I watched a bit of the coverage from 2008, and 2008 was such a straightforward, um, easy election. Like, there wasn't, it was, it was like Obama kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a landslide, but there was not much... Uh, it didn't really have much controversy or just everything went quite smoothly, you know? And the big thing I took out of the coverage that night was um, it was my first time seeing holograms used on a television oh, yeah. broadcast. <laughs> the hologram of Will I Am uh, still <laughs> sticks with me to this day as like just a a crossing over a threshold of tech, impressive technology in my lifetime. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what tricks uh, they pull out this year. Now, you'd think that was 12 years ago. My God, 12 years ago, um, we haven't seen holograms take off as being this big thing in, in media. It's, it's quite a shame. Well, you know, uh, it is a holograms are a thing. Like the most recent thing I think other than that was at... I don't know if you're familiar with Coachella, Alan, but it's a huge, it's one of the bigger concerts, kind of like Glastonbury in England, but they had Tupac Shakur perform as a hologram a couple of years back. Like that's the most recent wow. hologram I can think of. Wow. That's, uh, I, I heard Tupac has been, they've been pulling the name of Tupac through this upcoming election as well. Poor Tupac. They can't even let him, uh, they can't even let him rest. <laughs> yeah, whatever simplicity was there in the 2008 election, I can assure you, will not be the case this year. And whatever, whatever uh, easiness was there, whatever comfort people might have found in the end result, will not happen this year. Uh, again, I'm astounded by your decision, Alan, to take vacation <laughs> the first week of November. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. I'm probably going to get bored of it after 15 minutes or just throw my hands at the whole thing and then just start watching... Uh, old Toriumon DVDs. There you go. That's a, that's there. what I will be doing as well. I I mean, they are doing danger they're doing Gate of Destiny on election day. Here. Oh are they? Like, oh nice. On... I hadn't even I haven't even I hadn't even twigged I knew Gate of Destiny was like right at the start of November, but I hadn't twigged that that was when I'd be off from work. So yeah, that's that's great. I'll be able to watch and live tweet that with uh, all all y'all who are also uh, doing the live Gate of Destiny. I've been enjoying the, as me and Mike talked about on my show a couple of weeks ago, Dragon Gate's pay-per-view offerings have been quite the treat. So um, I'm hoping they hit another home run there on that one. Yeah, so you're going to have that. You at least have that in a Corican looking forward to it. The election just gets you too confused or too frazzled or you're just going like, 
those Americans are just absolute just idiots. You'll have that going towards you. But you were talking about 20, 2008. That is right before DGUSA. But 2012 election was about to gear up for for DGUSA as they as on this episode we are covering the first show of their weekend in Miami. And I think the the wild thing about this, Alan, is both of us were in person at the show. I don't think we were aware of each other at this time, but I've always kind of found it funny. It's like there there probably was like a like a parallel universe that, that Alan Farrell and I met during a uh, DJ Hyde versus Navy Blue match, and that would have been a wild story to tell. Well, tell me this, Mike, because I my first time knowing of you was when you started your solo podcast, which would have been definitely later in 2012 because. Myself and Sarah moved into the apartment that we lived in for a good few years in 2012. And I remember specifically the first time listening to, I have my memory works in weird ways, but I remember the room of the apartment I was in the first time I was listening to one of your solo shows that you had back then. What was that even called? What was that show called you had? That that was Inside the Gate. Inside. That was like That was like five episodes that I pulled off before I got busy with grad school. <laughs> So I know it was it was post-2012, so that was the first time I was aware of you. But would I have known of you, would we have crossed paths on any message boards or anything prior to that? I was a lurker on the Observer forums and on DVDVR. I, I definitely remember okay, well, that. They were my main haunts. Yeah, I definitely like was aware of your stewardship on the ProRes Paradise on the board at that time. I think like also Joe Lanza and Rich were both on the board at the same time as well. Case, you, you, you see, this is a little bit before you, but we used to have things called message boards that we used to post. To. <laughs> well, no, Rich my was... introduction to 4L was the F4W board. I think I, I got on the F4W board basically right as it died. Um, but I remember looking at Allen's like 2013 match of the year list and going, I didn't know one. I didn't know there was that much wrestling out there. And two, I didn't know you could watch that much wrestling. And I had it in my mind from there. It's like, I have to watch whatever Alan's watching. And seven years later, that has remained true. I can't believe I was on the board in 2013. I feel like, like mentally I was off the board in like 2011. I would say when me and Dean Knickerbocker did those annuals, the um, progress paradise annuals, which are incredible. He, he, he deserves, was all the credit for them uh, amazing work but it was like an encapsulation of all the great wrestling that happened during 2011 i guess we did 2012 too so 2012 was probably the last sort of year i remember being on the board at all but like the heyday the 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 real sweet spot years on that board for me were like i'd say seven to oh nine maybe that was um that was that was good stuff there was a lot of a lot of good stuff there. It was very active and a lot of good, good discussions and a lot of craziness too that uh, um, in hindsight was probably a, a big waste of all our time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, fun fun days. But um, yeah, I, I, I definitely don't remember us crossing paths much online, Mike, before this show. And we definitely didn't cross paths in person that I know of, but we certainly did telepathically cross paths from either side of the room during the Mazaki Mochizuki entrance as we were the only two people who engaged in a nice pumps fist mochi during his entrance. It, it was something while re-watching this. I have not re-watched the match for years, but Alan, I saw you jumping up out of your seat. I think I was 
opposite the entranceway, so I was not on the hard cam this time. But I remember like jumping up and doing this, and like looking across the room, and there was only one other person doing it. So yeah, I, I'm fairly certain it was the two of us were the only people who were going to chant mochi. Which you know, I mean, that's kind of the case now, where everyone just does their silent fist pumps. But we were there in spirit and psychologic or telepathically linked at that point. And, and not to jump too far into this match, but as well in the kind of like early goings of the match where they're just kind of circling each other and the crowd are like behind Tozawa. Most of them, I don't think even knew who Mochizuki was. And there is a huge singular Mochizuki chant that just goes up with with defiance and force and it has a certain Irish twang to it and you get Motozuki turn in that direction and give a, a little head nod and I was so happy seeing that the other day when I rewatched this. Yeah, what a man, Masaki Motozuki, uniting people across oceans, going across borders just for the Iron Man of pro wrestling and it was something that like I'm still to this day like speaking of like the show overall being able to see Masaki Mochizuki live is something that, you know, I think he's going to wrestle until he dies because he's that kind of guy. But I'm like, all right, I got to see him versus Tozawa. Will I tell you, I, I said to you guys before we started recording, I had a little Mochizuki story, which I might as well throw in here because it doesn't tie into this show in particular. But there was um, a, uh, I think it would have been, was it High Spots organized wrestle reunion thing going on that weekend? Yes. Yes. And there was a show where they, there was a show where they had like a bunch of legends on there, and uh, they they had a main event which was like the, um, I think it was the main event was like the uh, Florida Championship Wrestling Legends. So you had like your B. Brian Belair and people like that, Mike Graham, those kind of guys trotted out there. Um, but there was a handicap match pitting uh, two local jobbers against. One big Van Vader, and you have never seen, except maybe me and Mike during the Mochizuki Tozawa match, you have never seen a man mark out for a wrestling match as much as Mizaki Mochizuki was marking out for Vader killing these choppers. <laughs> Mochizuki, who came up in the uh, mid 90s shoot style, was probably acutely aware of big van vader super vader if he if you will in uwfi and he was like a kid on christmas watching vader in the flesh destroying these guys he was jumping up and down pumping his fist i noticed it out of the corner of my eye and i was like oh i i just i was so happy watching that <laughs> i i just pulled up this card right now I wonder what his thoughts were on the Man Scout Jake Manning versus Matt Classic that happened right before that. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the more that, like, I, I, I hear about Masaki Mochizuki and the more, like, he, like, talks about his past, the more I find him, like, one of the more remarkable people in wrestling that one of the greatest in-ring wrestlers was never planning on being a wrestler. He was tricked into being so. And that just makes me so happy, the fact that he stuck with it. And he got to see Big Van Vader in front right after seeing uh, Matt Classic versus the Man Scout, uh, Jake Manning. Like, only WrestleMania weekends can provide you that that happiness. Just the idea of, like, the congregation of people you can get in the one room during the ends. It's like, they, they've become... It's less of a shocking thing. But as well, like, the idea of... Mizaki Mochizuki, uh, B. Brian Blair, Vader, 
um, Brian Alvarez and Ahmed Johnson uh, all in the same room together. It's just wild. And it's something that I don't think we're ever going to go back to. I feel like that that was like an error, and I think that's something that with like WrestleMania weekend, especially because I was in both New Orleans and in New York City for like the last two big weekends, and it's such a different thing now than it even was then. And just like the, the pure assortment of people that you would get there, like where else would uh, uh where else would you have Brian, B Brian Blair and Masaki Mochizuki in the same room? Like that that was like the some of the, like the weird magic of these WrestleMania weekends. And Alan, that was your first weekend in America, wasn't it? It was indeed. Yeah, my first ever, my first holiday uh, with Sarah, our first time leaving the country together, and uh, um, our for, oh, my first time in America. She had been over for uh, the Houston WrestleMania in two thousand nine, but uh, this was my first time stepping foot in the U.S. of a, and uh, I will say it was a lot more. Um, uh calm and relaxed uh in 2012 than i felt it was in my last visit over there in 2019 18 2018 so uh yeah just things got a lot more tense over in america in the six years uh that i was <laughs> that i was there and you can't even point to like oh well you were in miami the first year in new orleans the second year and maybe there's like a uh a difference between the those two cities in terms of that although i don't know if you could say that because new orleans is known for kind of being a laid-back city as well but i was in new orleans in 2014 and there was a noticeable difference between new orleans in 2014 and new orleans in 2018 so um yeah hope uh, best wishes as always to both you guys and all my friends in america because yeah i definitely noticed it was a uh, uh maybe it was as well partly i was just a bit more jaded of going over there and just older and more cynical that could have been it and i was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed going over there in 2012 this is how bright-eyed and bushy-tailed i was going in 2012 guys um uh my wife both loves and hates this story um it was nearly the end of our relationship before we even made it onto that plane um i am a man of habits i am a man of kind of uh planning and um just little things that uh that i just kind of like to do which you know that might not make sense but just they're um, maybe a little bit ocd whatever it, it, you might want to describe it as but um i was going on to this long-haul flight and i had not been on a, a flight that long ever in my life before and i was prepared for such um because i was uh, big into my meals my meal preparation back then and i was making sure i had a uh, a ham sandwich nicely packed in my bag for the journey you know the important things that you must take care of uh, before planning such a trip and um so uh we're going through and we're doing all like customs kind of stuff we had to do on our side of dublin airport and there was this stuff about like uh, importing different things and things you can't bring into the country and all this kind of stuff and i was like oh yeah i'm clearly not doing any of that but then there was kind of like vague stuff about kind of meats and raw meats and things like that and i was like oh, i've got my ham sandwich in in my bag here that's probably not something uh that i would have any issue with but uh um i made my first mistake by saying to my wife hey, Sarah, do you think my ham sandwich would be a problem? That was a mistake, because obviously she's going to just say, 
throw your fucking ham excuse my language throw your fucking ham sandwich in the bin you absolute crazy man and <laughs> i ar- i argued for my ham sandwich and why i should keep it and she just didn't want to listen to that she just like was like whatever eat your ham sandwich shut up and uh then um my second mistake was as we were going through and actually talking to the customs agents. We're going through the like US customs in Dublin airport at this point. And I'm talking to a lovely uh, American police officer who's been stationed in Dublin airport and uh, going through with everyone else. They're asking the usual questions. And I'm in such a great mood and such great spirits, guys. I'm just full of smiles for this guy. He's giving me stern looks, but I'm full of smiles for him and I'm full of witty uh, banter and just a delight to be around, or so I think. And as he's asking me and he mentions about anything I want to note about going through, and I decide it's a good idea to reference my ham sandwich and how I'm sure that's not going to be a problem. (laughs) And he didn't take kindly to this. And Sarah had already gone through ahead of me, like like literally she was the first person ahead of me in, in the queue and she had gone through and she was waiting on the other side, expecting me to follow through right behind her. She didn't see me for another, I would say, 50 minutes to um, because I was put in a, a box essentially and uh, had to um, uh, wait for someone to come in and confiscate my ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> at which point I was uh, given my marching orders and sent through and I had a very panicked very worried scared future wife waiting for me who when I explained what had happened was ready to turn back around and not just go back home but go back to Waterford and never see me again. <laughs> I I had to say, Sarah was like, I see how this is going. I'm just going to like pull a seat because Alan's going to mention his ham sandwich, and that's going to be a whole thing. Like that is <laughs> that's some incredible foresight there. So yeah, that's a that is a, an example of what you're dealing with when you uh, take me on a on a, on a trip. Now, as I went on more of these trips, I became a lot of calmer and more rational in my decision making and um you know but uh in you know the the the, the first one i was i was all excited i wanted every every um i dotted and t cross and that meant having my ham sandwich in my bag ready to go for just if it so happened that there might be a moment between provided meals that i might get hungry on the plane that <laughs> i'd have my ham sandwich right there waiting for me and um yeah it got it landed me in a spot of bother as they say well i think that's like a good way almost to segue into some of the timeline things so it's not you... a good way to segue into anything like, <laughs> but i appreciate you trying <laughs> I, I mean, I was going to say, like, so you had your hand sandwich, you got on a plane, you landed. Uh, I know that you went to other shows than I did. That was going to be my transition. That was, like, I felt like I could have made it work somehow. Obviously, in retrospect, never was going to happen. But, so, this weekend was interesting because you had the DGUSA and the WrestleCon, uh, Wrestle Reunion stuff by High Spots, all based in Miami Beach, but you also had Ring of Honor up in Fort Lauderdale, and did you end up going to this? Is an okay? Uh, you have the cards lining up, lined up for this. Uh, 
what was your plan on this trip? Did you end up going, did you pull a Joey Bay and try to go see everything possible? Or were you just like focused in on saying like, I want to go see Masaki Mochizuki versus Akira Tozawa. I'm going to base myself on the beach versus having to brave I-95 in the turnpike and doing back and forth between uh, Miami Beach and Fort Lauderdale. No, no, no. We kept it very, very simple. This was uh, the, the getting over there and, and, and all that was just was that was enough of an adventure to me. I didn't need to be going uh, um, straying too far from the home base once I once I got to America. So we stayed in a hotel that was, I don't know, maybe a five minute walk um, from the Dragon Gate venue. Um, straight down the road, and then we moved hotels halfway through. Um, it was pre-planned, but wasn't something that wasn't like something came up and we had to move. We had we had booked a, a second hotel, uh, which was basically the same distance on the other side. So the Dragon Gate uh, venue was between our two hotels um, that we stayed in, and it was um, we we had a very. I think the furthest out we went was we went kind of into. The South Beach area to go to Access, and then okay. obviously WrestleMania itself, which was quite a distance away, um, somewhere out in the out in the sticks. But um, uh, yeah, it was. We had no intention of going to Ring of Honor. Sarah wasn't interested in Ring of Honor. She she went to Ring of Honor in two thousand nine, and she didn't think much of it. And she had no, she wasn't really watching any Ring of Honor at that stage. So mainly because I kind of got her into indie wrestling stuff into the 2011-ish time, and I wasn't watching a ton of Ring of Honor then, so, like, Chikara, Dragon Gate USA, that was the kind of stuff she kind of latched on to, so, yeah, we had no real interest in in ROH. Um, we did the two Dragon Gate shows, we did that Wrestle Reunion stuff, and um, I guess that would have been it as far as non-WWE. And, and to be honest, as someone who was living in Miami at that time, that would have been, I've been like, I sure hope Alan and Sarah didn't have to go on the interstate or go onto the turnpike. They're too nice to deal with Miami traffic. I don't want anyone to have to deal with that. So that would have been the retroactively Mike Spears approved thing because I was, because I lived far south of all that and I was trying to get onto Miami Beach, which is a thing in South Florida. If you live in South Florida, unless you live on the beach, you don't go to Miami Beach unless you're going to clubs. It's just too much of a hassle. It's too expensive. It's like 20 minutes in a cab. So I, for this weekend, like we, last week we were talking about the CZW Dragon Gate USA show in Hollywood. And I was like, no, that thought never crossed my mind. I was not going to do that. I had work. I was not going to go up there to go see a bunch of death matches in the German American friendship hall. So I think, I think y'all's, uh, uh, your path of victory there was the right one. I feel like that Joe Lanza, other than some of the matches that happened at Ring of Honor, I think that he would understand that as well. Yeah. We where the Dragon Gate show was, I guess it was North Beach. It was it was called, and yeah, it was North like Beach. yeah, and it was didn't have the reputation of and like have people like who are from America who actually Brian Alvarez specifically. I remember him coming up when he arrived at the the venue for one of the Dragon Gate shows. He came up and he was like acting like it was like a real sketchy area. And I was like, this is not that bad at all. This is this is quite nice and relaxed and everyone's chilled and the beaches were me and Sarah were able to go to the beaches on the days leading up to the shows and they were super quiet and just really nice and it was 
we had a lovely time and we went out to South Beach. I think before access, we went out to that area and explored it for maybe like we were willing to give it a couple hours if we like found things we wanted to do or wanted to spend time there. I think we were only there like 20 minutes and we were like, yeah, no, this isn't for us at all. So <laughs> I mean, whenever people would come visit me, they're like, oh, I want to go to South Beach. I want to go to South Beach. It's like, do y'all really want to? And usually it's about 20 minutes and they're like, you know what? I've this is enough. It took, it cost $20 to rent a umbrella. I I'm pretty good here. I was like, yeah, okay, we're good here. And then, you know, go find something else to do. So again, wise beyond your years playing it that way. Uh, case, I know you have the ring of honor shows up there. And I know that, that I remember this weekend, especially one match in particular, kind of becoming kind of the match of the weekend from ring of honor. Yeah, so I'll run down both of these cards real quick because it's just the names on these shows are incredible. I mean, Showdown of the Sun, night one, which is the same night as the show we're about to talk about, Open the Ultimate Gate, happened on the same night. Opening match was the Briscoe Brothers versus the Mighty Don't Kneel of Mikey Nichols and Shane Haste. Match number two was Adam Cole defeating Adam Pierce. And then from there you go, All Night Express over the Young Bucks, Jay Lethal retaining the ROH TV title over Kyle O'Reilly, World's Greatest Tag Team defeating the CNC Wrestle Factory, Mike Bennett defeating Lance Storm, Kevin Steen won a last man standing match against El Generico, and the main event of night one was a three-way elimination match with Davey defending the Ring of Honor belt over Eddie Edwards and Roderick Strong. And then you move into night two where the opener was Jimmy Jacobs versus El Generico. You saw Tommaso Ciampa defeat Cedric Alexander. TJ Perkins defeated Fire Ant. That is a real match on a Ring of Honor show. We had the first Kyle O'Reilly versus Adam Cole singles match in ROH. The Young Bucks once again defeated the All Night Express. The Briscoes retained the tag belts over the world's greatest tag team. Kevin Steen defeated Eddie Edwards. Roderick Strong won the TV title over Jay Lethal. In your main event, the match of the week in the five-star match, according to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Davey Richards defending the ROH belt over Michael Elgin. So, Alan, I know you weren't watching a ton of Ring of Honor at the time, but in 2012, a Dave Meltzer five-star match meant something. So did you go back and rewatch these shows after the fact? Yeah, I, I don't want to sort of misrepresent. I was watching, like, all the, the key stuff and anything that got hyped. It just wouldn't have been something that I was, like, super high on or, like, uh, it wouldn't be something that, as I said, I was trying to uh, to get my girlfriend to take an interest in. It was just, like, something I watching my own time occasionally i didn't expect it would be something she'd enjoy at all so i think that was more kind of where i was coming from but i was i was certainly keeping an eye on it and i i definitely plan to watch the uh i pay-per-views of these shows when i got back to ireland and it was hearing about the people's reaction who were there like i, I remember hearing at the dragon usa shows about the davy match and people were raving at it uh, about it so um, I was excited to watch it when I went home and I made the mistake of watching it on a day where I was getting back to grips with things and fighting jet lag and I kept falling asleep during it and believe it or not I never went back and rewatched it so in a weird way it kind of it kind of um qualifies for that voice of wrestling tweet the other day of like most famous match you've never seen I went with the tongue-in-cheek answer of Shima versus Cyberkong, but um, Davey versus Elgin is kind of in a weird way my answer too, because whilst I did watch it, I literally have no memory of it or didn't really, it just didn't, 
I didn't take it in at all. And the other problem was the the production on the light pay-per-view was really bad. So um, just I, I just didn't think it came across well. And as I said, I was I was tired and I just I just didn't enjoy it at all when I was watching it. So I was like, yeah, this looks like it's probably a really good match, but sleep, you know. So um, I don't know. It's uh, it'd be one I'd be curious to rewatch if there was if there was a high quality version of it out there somewhere. But I don't know if it was the types of production issues that they'd be able to clean up. I think it probably just was what it was at the time. I don't know how Mike feels about it. I know, like, I think the Davey versus Elgin match is great. I mean, I think I gave it four and a half the last time I watched it. I still think from October of 2012, the Kevin Steen, Michael Elgin match from, I think that is a death before dishonor show. Maybe it's a glory by honor. It's one of the marquee events that for me is still the best match in Sinclair era ring of honor history. But you know, a lot of this show we've covered Davies career. Once he split from Drangit USA and he's obviously headlining two WrestleMania weekend shows. He's doing all right for himself, but we're kind of transitioning at this point into that new era of indie wrestling with Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, Michael Elgin as almost the three headed dragon that ring of honor was presenting for a new era of fans and, you know, mixed results as time has gone on. But this is around the time a little bit later in 2012 is when I got into Ring of Honor and I have very fond memories of this year just because I was so new to the promotion at the time. And it's something that like, I remember this period vividly because of how bad, like I was talking about like the version they have of the shows. I pay-per-view for Ring of Honor ended up being more of a disaster later, like long-term than it did for DGUSA. Like, WWN Live had a lot of issues, but it it seemed like that they were able to, like, to kind of figure things out. But I remember like there was a power outage during one of these shows for uh, Ring of Honor, and it was just like another and a bevy thing. So for people and that Cornette were, like, really... was losing his mind, apparently. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So like it was one of those things where it was in such like a a shape that other than like the uh, Richards Elgin match. It felt like in a lot of things, like people were like, "Oh yeah, no, what's going on is good," but God, it's such a pain dealing with all of it. So uh, I mean, for me with like DG USA, I was like, "All right, that's fine. I'll just order the shows, and hopefully the feed doesn't go down. I have to deal with uh, Gabe's practices with it." But you, you know, it, it's like an interesting thing because really, like you looked at how everything split in 2010 and how things kind of were like in that one era of WrestleMania week and up until the first spring break and then the collective forming, it was one of those things where like you were able to like, I know people who were like, okay, scheduling wise, it might be a little iffy, but I could sit here and watch everything from my couch. And then ring of honor had a power transformer go down. And that kind of became a little bit of a story of the weekend. And to your point, Mike, just to transition into the Drangate USA timeline of things, uh, the iPay-Per-View for Open the Ultimate Gate 2012, the show we're about to talk about, was offered at $1.99. Gabe uh, had a big deal about how Pac versus Loki was the, the main event. He announced that during the Super Bowl uh, halftime show on Twitter and Facebook, which I just, I can't imagine <laughs> the cryptic tweets that Gabe had hyping that up uh, to Pac versus Loki. But then the other move that he made was he knew, I think the second Ring of Honor show was in the afternoon and the second Dragon USA show was in the evening, but night one, they were going head to head. So Gabe made the move and said, we've got Pac versus Loki on the show. It's a, it's, you know, a true dream match. 
we're going to offer the show for $1.99 instead of $14.99 or whatever Ring of Honor was uh, charging at the time. And it's something they never went back to, at least to my knowledge, and I'm pretty well-versed in the Gabe Sapolsky iPay-Per-View history. I don't think they ever offered a show this cheap again, but it seemed like something to sort of drum up interest for Drangate USA, which at the time was just not really generating any buzz. And that's what I was kind of curious about with you, Alan, was 2011, 2012, are you still watching DGUSA on a regular basis? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's It was a promotion I was heavily invested in from the outset, uh, from, well, from months before the outset. When I, when I first heard, I remembered... I remember that would it have been MSN or AOL or whatever kind of chat, maybe just Gmail chat with, with Rob Naylor, where he broke the news to me that there was going to be a Dragon Gate USA, Alan. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God. And, uh, um, yeah, that was, like, from that point onwards, I would say up until, like... I remember when the crowds started kind of going down a bit, maybe late 2010. I remember kind of thinking, I I was still into it, but I was less excited about the prospect of it being kind of this big thing. And they were having iPay-per-view issues. They were, were having smaller crowds, like I mentioned. Um, it just It just kind of didn't seem like it was going to be what we might have thought in July 2009. But, I mean, I would say I was really heavily invested pretty much right through until, uh, I want to say the end, like the last time the Dragon Gate guys were over. But in reality, it was probably about six months before that that I was probably starting to maybe lose a bit of, uh, my interest was starting to wane in it, I would, I would think. Yeah, I remember they had that uh, weekend okay. where Yosuke Santa Maria was over. Was was the Yosuke weekend, was that... Was that after the 2014 Mania Weekend, or was it before? That was before. before. The the 2014 yeah. Mania Weekend show with none of the Drangate talent was the final shows, and Maria was the only yeah. Japanese talent in February, and she came over as... I. It was supposed to be, I think Shima and Saito were supposed to be on those shows, and both yeah. of them had to pull out, so they sent Maria instead. Yeah, that rings a bell for sure. And she wrestled Ethan Page, right? Uh, yes, she yes. did. <laughs> The, the last match with any Dragon Gate uh, native talent was Ethan Page versus Yosuke Santa Maria. <laughs> and on that horribly depressing note, also <laughs> on the timeline, I just, I have to move on. I guess we have to watch that match at some point, but God, that sounds bad. Uh, the other thing to note, and I can kind of lump all of these different announcements into one sort of piece here, was we talked about in the last show, there was the nine-man three-way elimination tag where Uha Nation blew out his knee, he got hurt. So what was originally supposed to be a card that featured Shima and Ricochet versus Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor, AR Fox versus Uha Nation, and Masato Yoshino versus Rich Swan, all of those matches got shuffled around because Shima injured his neck, Uha had the blown out knee. So we ended up with AR Fox versus Rich Swan and Ricochet teaming with his now world one international partner, Masato Yoshino in the main event. So the proposed card looked a little bit different. I do have to give Gabe credit because he had booked AR Fox versus Uha nation originally. And that was a match that had been done in AIW twice up to this point. CZW had done it. They were 
beginning to become a touring match uh, in the same ilk as a Skrull versus Osprey or a Mysterio versus Psychosis. And that was obviously all ruined when Uha blew out his knee and he ended up missing 11 months because of it, which was a real bummer. But we had a, a slightly altered card at first. We ended up with what I thought was a pretty fine show. The one other thing that I did want to cover before we broke down Ultimate Gate itself was, Alan, I want to know your thoughts on WrestleMania uh, from this past, uh, from 2012, because I will say myself, I talked about it on your show once, how my intro into wrestling was I had a videotape with Tajiri versus Billy Kidman on it. That is pretty much the only match I watched for about five years. Then I got into SmackDown from 2006 to 2007. Chris Benoit died. I stopped watching wrestling. WrestleMania 28 in Miami brought me back. I remember ordering the show on pay-per-view, being so excited, and this was my gateway back into wrestling. So what did you think of the show? I loved it. I mean, it was my first WrestleMania. It was a huge bucket list experience. The show could have been terrible, and I probably would have had an amazing time. But we were we were seated with a, a bunch of awesome people. Uh, I actually think I was sitting beside uh, uh, someone we talked about briefly before we started uh, recording, uh, Mr. Uh, EVP or Senior Vice President of AEW, uh, Chris Harrington. Um, had a lovely time sitting beside him at that WrestleMania. And um, I, yeah, I, I just, it was, I was in, in heaven that day. And like, that was before, like, don't get me wrong. We all still knew WWE were like a scuzzy company back then. I think like known that for a long, long time, far before 2012. But it wasn't like the level of just, disengagement that I have with them now like that I just think they're just the dirtiest most horrible company and I just <laughs> you know like I, I have friends that work there I like a lot of people that work there and I do not begrudge people that work there but um, just I I have no connection that's the best way to just, I have just no connection to that company whatsoever I, I just uh, do not get any enjoyment out of it. I, I try to watch anything they produce and I just, I, I can't enjoy it. I just find it just so, ugh. and, uh, um, back then I was s still a good few years before feeling that way. And I was just able to enjoy every bit of the pageantry of it. Um, all the, the, just the quirks of WrestleMania that you, you love just being at an outdoor big outdoor wrestling show like that was amazing. But yeah, the matches they they delivered for me. I mean, like I love that punk Jericho match on the day in the stadium. I I thought Triple H and Taker in the Hell in the Cell was five stars, every bit of five stars when I was watching it there on the day. And when I rewatched it when I got home, I I thought the exact same. If I was to watch it now, I'd probably be like, oh, look at these two fools. I'm just rolling my <laughs> eyes at it the whole time. Just like thinking of Undertaker. Like just, you know, you're just so much cyn more cynical now. Like if I'm watching like a, like that Undertaker match, like I'm going to be just thinking about like Undertaker and his stupid t-shirts and his stupid just <laughs> real life personality and that documentary that... I didn't actually watch myself, but I heard other people just eviscerate and everything I heard said about this man just maybe just roll my eyes at him. And um, Triple H is Triple H. So, yeah, I'd probably be uh, 
I'd probably be so much more cynical and eye-rolly watching that match now than I was at the time. But I loved it. Like, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Um, and, yeah, there was, like, there is some other stuff on the card. I can't remember. Oh, uh, the, so the main event with Cena and, and The Rock. I didn't really like that whole program. Um, I didn't really like The Rock's run return run in WWE. But it was, like, it was a cool moment when he won. And I remember kind of just like the WrestleMania closing and everyone going crazy. It was it was like a cool moment, but I didn't really love the match itself. Um, I feel like there's something else I'm forgetting that I really did like on that show. But um, well, to, oh, to I was run down in, that full card. Oh, go ahead, you remember it. I was in a real sulky mood at the start because I had actually gambled on the show, and um, I had gambled on. I think I had gambled on was it whether it was Orton to beat Kane or Kane to beat Orton, whichever happened, I bet on the opposite. And that came right after the Daniel Bryan Sheamus match, which I was really excited for, and then it ended in like nine seconds. So I I I was actually in a bit of a bad mood for like the first half an hour of the show, but they 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 won me back with whatever came in the, the next matches that followed. Yeah, the uh, the Big Show versus Cody Rhodes match and the Kelly Kelly and Maria Menounos versus Beth Phoenix and Eve Torres match. I'm sure those won you right over, Alan. Yeah, they were great, great professional wrestling bags <laughs> that I will certainly factor in when I'm uh, doing my greatest wrestler ever research uh, over the next few months. Yes, I told you I was going to be uh, watching some Joshi for the first time ever. I I need to add the... Well, there uh, you go, Maria Menounos. <laughs> yeah, I was just to add the, the best hits of Maria Menounos to that list. But uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to bring that up because personally, CM Punk versus Chris Jericho sold me on that show. I got back into wrestling because of that match. And uh, now I'm here talking to you guys. And I don't know about you all, but I'm ready to open the Ultimate Gate 2012. Yeah, I mean, my big uh, Mania 28 moments were I was more, much more psyched about the CM Punk Rock feud before the uh, Cena one because they did a promo based around the fact that The Rock is a former Miami Hurricane, my alma mater, and talking about the Orange Bowl. Like, that got me into that one, but that was that was such a weird Mania, to be honest. But yeah, let's get into the shit. Wait, you, Mike, you were in the U. I... I was in the U. I worked on oh, the, the U. U. In the uh, U I'm too. Throw, I'm throwing up. I'm doing the. Can we do the hand thing together? Will you do the hand thing with me on air here, oh, Mike? Absolutely. Make sure, Alan, as a University of Miami alumnus, I want you to be clear about this. You always connect your thumbs on the U. Just to make sure I am I'm throwing it up the, right now. Well, the thumbs are touching case. Are you throwing up a U as well? Brother, you know I'm throwing up the U. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. On the way home from. Uh, from Miami, uh, I stopped in. I, this might have been in the layover airport, but I stopped in a, a store you guys like to call Lids. Is that correct? Is that the name of a store? Alan, I was an assistant manager at a Lids. I know all about Lids. <laughs> well, I bought myself a The U, uh, green, um, uh, what's your fitted hat? Uh, yes. uh, I'd never had a fitted hat before. I'd only had the the hats with the like with the uh, the adjustable you, uh, back. 
the adjustable. Yeah, I'd only had those before, and I we, the the fitted hats weren't really a really a big thing in Ireland. So uh, I I got myself one of these fitted hats that uh, was green with a um a green and orange U on the back slash front of it, depending on how you wear it. And I also got myself a um. North Carolina, what's North Carolina? Blue and white. What are what are they called again? Tar heels. I got myself yes, one of their hats too. Um, geez, I'm covering I'm covering all the Mike Spears bases there with North Carolina <laughs> and Miami, right? Um, I I I mean, next you bring up that you had a Texas Rangers hat, and you'll cover all the major <laughs> places I've lived in my life. <laughs> well, I I didn't get that sadly, but uh, even more sadly. Um, there's like three items that I've mysteriously lost in my um, moves between apartments and, and my current house. And one of them is an old tennis racket. Uh, another is, um, I forget what the other one was, but the third one was um, uh, my the U green hat. I can't find it oh. anywhere. It's a real <laughs> bummer. Because again, going back to me being a little bit OCD, I can't, I don't deal well with misplacing things or losing things. I don't even mind losing the item itself. It's the not knowing how or where I lost it that troubles me and keeps me awake at night. Alan, I, I, I do have to ask real quick, was the lids experience okay? Because I am someone that collects hats the way most people collect shoes. So I, I did take a lot of pride in my lids establishment when I worked there. Was your experience all right? It was really good. I have I have nothing but fond memories and good things to say about it. I, it really cheered me up during the middle of this uh, uh, trip back home uh, to uh, get myself some nice, uh, authentic American lids. <laughs> I, I I mean, it really warms my heart, Alan, knowing that you got a University of Miami baseball hat. We need to find where that is. I love uh, the uh, visual uh, of Alan wearing a Miami hat. That is so funny to me. <laughs> Uh, it makes me happy. It make that that made my day. I'm willing to say that 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 made I my did, day. I did get a lot of wear out of it before it eventually left me. So I, I maybe Sarah didn't like it and she just uh, <laughs> dumped it somewhere. I'm gonna take this up with I'm gonna take this up with Sarah next time I talk to her. We're like, uh, where's Alan's University of Miami hat? This is very important to me and me alone. And Alan would like to know what happened to it. <laughs> Well, with the lids journey uh, told, I'm so glad we got off on that. I, I think we are finally ready to break down the main card of Open the Ultimate Gate 2012. Yeah, l let's get into it. So, How did we get, even get there? <laughs> I don't even know. Alan, I'm not sure, but it happened. I remember I'm you saying we were ready to... I remember you saying we're ready to open the ultimate gate like 10 minutes ago. Oh, you were, we were talking about the U. Later, we were talking about the U. And, uh, and we all threw up the U. And then Alan mentioned that he went to Liz. And I, it was the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, as I said at the front, this is the show from the Deauville Resort in Miami Beach. The dearly departed Deauville Resort. I've checked to see. Oh, no. I like Yep, uh, like many things in Miami, it doesn't last a long time, and it's got claimed by foreclosure. So, the most Miami thing possible. It was on March 30th, 2012. We opened up with AR Fox defeating Rich Swan in 10 minutes, 59 seconds with the low main pain. The opener, the true opener to the show, which I was kind of glad that did not make it, was DJ Hyde defeating 
uh, navy blue. That match was terrible from my recollection. But th but then we had this this really fun opener with uh, Air Fox defeating uh, uh, Rich Swan. This was one of the matches that Case mentioned was transferred around. Originally, it was going to be the battle of the Mr. Hughes students. But instead, we had Air Fox getting a win against Rich Swan. And you know, I the thing that kind of took me aback about this match was how much of a completed product rich swan was at this time especially considering how much he worked in japan basically from like the start of ronin to this point like this was like rich swan in a lot of ways like the fully actualized wrestler that i saw in this match and i really enjoyed that yeah alan what do you think of this really good high energy opener i mean like you couldn't pick a better match to like it's not going to fill your match of the year notebooks but it's just a perfect way to start a show like this um high energy first show of the weekend get the people excited it's just perfect in so many ways um swan was amazing in 2011 uh, i definitely think he was more of a complete product than, than fox at this moment in time swan's trips to dragon gate just did so much good for him just he got a level of polish from going there and i recently have gone back and, and watched some of his uh, dragon gate stuff that didn't actually make air on the the tv um in 2011 but uh, i was able to see kind of full versions of of some of those shows and and seeing him perform just so effortlessly and how well he worked with all those guys and how much the japanese crowd took to him and how great he was at engaging with the Japanese crowd it just feels like he is a guy who could have had a multi-year successful career in Dragon Gate in Japan and it's a shame it didn't happen I think it would have I think he would just like he honestly could if, if he had loved it over there and and he really adapted to the culture or whatever I could easily see him being someone who could have just um set up over there and just stayed there and done really well and be now 10 years in on a, a really successful Japanese wrestling career. It's, um, yeah, he, he just was really making a ton of improvements at this point and, and looking really great. And, um, uh, what do you guys think of the, uh, you might've talked about this in, in one of the early shows, but the, uh, the Ronan baby entrance music as sung by Rich Swan, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. I will say for me, it is it was an initial thumbs up because the thing with Ronan is they were booked as heels to start. And then on the first show of 2011, Swan does the Ronan baby entrance in New York and it turns them face and they had to change their booking because of it. Initially, awesome idea. It seems like somewhere along the way, I think swan either got sick of doing it or just stopped putting in the effort and it never really connected me connected with me as much as maybe the all night long entrance that he and ricochet would later do in pwg yeah it, it was something that like i thought that ronan baby it was like such a big moment for like the three of them because it was so distinctive at the time like no one was like coming out and doing stuff like that and it kind of like for like people like I was already well aware of Chuck Taylor uh, of these three guys before this, but for like being able to get this over as like an act initially, it was like such like a different thing. And as Kay said, it made them have to. They originally were heels going against Shima, and then you know they, they had to change everything around. Some of that was also due to Dragon Gate Japan booking with the start of Blood Warriors happening pretty soon after. But 
it, it's something that by like the end of at least by like this weekend initially i was kind of done with it uh i also really like johnny gargano's theme so like the ronin baby going straight into that theme i always really liked and i it was one of those things that it was always kind of weird when you, when everyone would come out to that because it's so identified with me as johnny gargano's theme but you know, I could tell that after a while, Swan was like, oh, I have to do this again? Okay. And it just kind of, you know, sidelined him, I guess, more as a serious character where you already have Gargano and Taylor as two incredibly somewhat serious characters, and you have Rich Swan coming out beatboxing. So, like, I get why it kind of, after a certain while, just got tiresome. I'll throw uh, one other point about this match. This was the first uh, time we saw... Uh, something that haunted this show and I'm sure the the next show as well. How terrible were the ropes on this professional wrestling ring? <laughs> My God, you'd think, uh, I was going to say, you'd think Gabe and Sal could have invested in a bit of a better ring for their big WrestleMania weekend shows. But then again, you probably wouldn't think that, would you? So we had this, uh, we had this ring, which I'm sure was, rented from like i don't know chase and rance or someone and <laughs> the ropes were so bad and there was so many issues with them throughout the night and yeah it was there was one glaring uh i don't want to even just call it like a botch but just a a glaring kind of misstep at one point in this match because of these ropes yeah, the biggest thing that I've taken away from Drangate USA, and we're almost three years deep into this promotion now, it just the amount of avoidable production and quality snafus that were there, running venues with low ceilings. We talked about during the Atlanta WrestleMania weekend the year before, nobody could do any dives because if they would have jumped off the top rope, they would have gone through the ceiling. This year, it's the ropes that are not good. It's a ring that doesn't really look like it's in that great of a condition. And then you add on top of that, the uh, notorious cheapness of Gabe and Sal with just not being able to make venues look respectable, let alone classy. And it's all preventable. And it's frustrating because I think that, especially by the end of Drangate USA, overtook whatever was going on in the ring was that you would turn on that eye pay-per-view assuming the eye pay-per-view worked and you would just see a promotion that looked terrible a promotion that looked really really bad and miami here was no different unfortunately and after one of the big things in the promotion and you guys hit on this well on the early podcast you did in the series you you guys definitely made a point of talking about this one of the early things that they were pointing to to differentiate their product was that it was a premium wrestling product this was Philip stake pro wrestling you might have to pay a little bit more for it but you were going to get attention to detail you weren't going to get cost cutting you were going to get premium quality stuff and that lasted what like two shows it's completely gone after the first anniversary show i think because yeah. the, the canada shows drew poorly but there was an effort there Anything after Danielson versus Shingo looks minor league. And, and it's something like to an extent that now we're living in the post uh, WWN era that now this footage is as someone who works in post production. If I was handed a hard drive of all this footage, like I'd be going through basically everything. You're like, Oh, this is, we can't put this up. This looks terrible. This looks terrible. And it's something that, you know, 
after a while, it just is one of those things that I know how much of a shoestring things got with them, but it's like this is supposed to like feel like this thing. And that was like one of the wild things about this venue. Like the hotel that this happened at was a really nice hotel. Like, really it, nice, like yeah. it was like in like the fifties kind of style and it was like well maintained. Like I remember like we'll talk about this next week, case that there was a match I took off and I just went to the bar because I was like, I'm not dealing with this. And 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 it said I had and said I had a cocktail instead of watching that match. And it's just, like, really nice. But then, like, you, like, look at this room. Like, yeah, they have the uh, wall with the uh, curtain and the lights on the, the curtain. But then, you, like, you, whenever they have the camera looking out towards the crowd, and it's just, like, it lo- does not look like it's something special. It looks like that they found, like, a conference room and had a match. And it's just optically, it, it, it's incredibly frustrating. And, and, and no better example of that than not, not making sure you have a safe ring. I mean, that's something that would really bite Gabe later on with Evolve, but it's something that the, the lack of care that was shown at times is so entirely frustrating with DGUSA and with just Gabe promotions after Ring of Honor and after a senior Ring of Honor attended as well. You know, it's just frustrating. Mike, I'm really glad you brought up the venue. I want to make one quick point before we move on. I know a few episodes ago, I mentioned that Gabe had launched the Creative Common Reel series on YouTube so video editors could edit Evolve and Drang at USA shows. This weekend in Miami, and all of these videos are still up on YouTube, and I should also note that that Rich Swan AR Fox match is up on YouTube for free. You can go watch that. The other thing that is still up there is the beginning of Gabe Sapolsky's Book It Cams, his YouTube series where he would film vertically, making it uncomfortable to watch and he would have like 45 second promos uh with the roster members one of them being masato yoshino this weekend where he films yoshino tanning by the hotel pool and then doing a glorious belly flop into the pool so that is on youtube for anyone that would like to check that out i mean who would not want to see masato yoshino do a belly flop i mean that's that's top tier content if you ask me i'm so glad you mentioned that because when we were talking about the hotel earlier I was going to say I had this weird memory of something to do with Masato Yoshino hanging out by the pool. <laughs> but I was like, I, in my head, I couldn't reconcile, was that an actual thing that happened or am I like imagining it? So, um, yeah, you've clarified that now for me. That is exactly why I thought of that. And there was also something, because I, I thought it was confusing because I remember someone telling me when I was there at the hotel, someone who was staying there talking about how it was so much fun being out by the pool and seeing Vader doing cannonballs into the pool. (laughs) So I'm just picturing like Masato Yoshino uh, hanging by the pool in his sun chair tanning while Vader is doing cannonballs and Mochizuki is like popping at Vader doing the cannonballs just as Yeah, Mochizuki is looking through the window like, can you believe how high this guy gets in the air? This Vader <laughs> guy's awesome. <laughs> Gosh. I, maybe I should have done a staycation this weekend and just hung out by the pool between the shows. I mean, I'm me and Masato Yoshino, we could compare tans, you know. I, I'll I'll toss him his towel after he does belly flop, just hang out, you know. I feel like that that that, that is peak guys being dudes content right there. That's really dudes rock if there ever was one. Like and, and I remember like everyone saying like this hotel owned, but it looked terrible on camera. Like I remember like Chuck Taylor saying, like, Yeah, no, we were in this like nice hotel in Miami and it just was something that you wouldn't be able to tell really watching the show. 
Well, Mike, let's talk about Chuck Taylor and the match that preceded it and the cloud that hung over Chuck Taylor this entire weekend. Before we get to that, uh, Spike Mohicans came out after this match. Shima ha- suffered a neck injury in Hollywood, and then he- that would force him to vacate the United Gate titles. Taylor uh, literally skips to the ring. Chuck Taylor literally skips to the ring, with and he introduces his man friend, Johnny Gargano, and he wants to be handed the belts. Johnny disagrees and wants to fight for them. And then Masato Yoshino feels like this promo is going on too long and says he will team with Ricochet and then tells Gargano that he will not insult him again. And then we take it to the match, a match that I know Alan has a lot of feelings and opinions about. Bobby Fish and Tommy Dreamer. We get the return of Tommy Dreamer case. Defeating the scene featuring uh, Caleb Conley and Scott Reed, accompanied by Larry Dallas, Amber O'Neill, Sassy Steffi, and Shelly Martinez. It was uh, Bobby Fish with the fish hook onto Caleb Connolly. And I guess we just got to kind of get into it, don't we? Well, let before we talk about the match, let's talk about the weekend that Larry Dallas had. Because at this point, the scene is a featured act on Drangit USA. And I should note that the politics in Drangit USA were beginning to really unravel in a way because while we talked about just a minute ago how Ronan looked like this really strong unit on screen, behind the scene, the teams were kind of divided. Gargano and Taylor had one over part of the locker room. And then there was another faction that was kind of Rich Swan, Larry Dallas. I think Sammy Callahan and Eric Cannon were in that crew too. And there was a split there and Gabe liked Chuck Taylor to an extent and Johnny Gargano especially and wasn't really crazy about Rich Swan. We talked during the Los Angeles show when Swan missed his flight that Gabe was ready to stop booking Swan altogether and he kind of had to be talked back into it. So what happens the night of this show? Well, the Drangit USA crew goes to the beach. Uh, they are drinking everyone involved. And uh, at some point, Larry Dallas and Chuck Taylor get into a fight. And as Larry put it, I asked him about it directly. He said he tried to rap on, quote, the worst rear naked choke of all time. Sammy and Eric Cannon pulled him off of Chuck Taylor. And then Chuck Taylor landed, as Larry put, five really strong punches to the face. And this really boiled over. You'll notice on the next show, Larry Dallas has to wear sunglasses the entire time because Chuck Taylor gave him a black eye. Uh, and this was just a mess. Gabe wanted to fire Chuck Taylor after this incident. People were mad at Larry. People were mad at Chuck. It was an entire ordeal. And naturally, it ended up with, supposedly, as the story goes, Pac had to give a locker room speech about professionalism and how everybody needs to get along because this is one company and one team. But that is a story that's been out there, the Chuck Taylor-Larry Dallas brawl. That would happen after this show, uh, after whatever in the fuck this scene versus Bobby Fish and Tommy Dreamer match was that I know Alan has a lot of thoughts on. This was the least wholesome display I've ever borne witness to life. This thing was, ugh. I, you mentioned there was a match on the next show you, you went out of the room for. Um, yeah. I, feel like me and Sarah probably bailed on this because I have no memory of sitting through this. I can't imagine wanting to sit through this. I definitely can't imagine Sarah sitting through it. Um, So I think we stepped out during this thing. I 
Um, I was over Tommy Dreamer well before 2012. So I could, if if the scene's entrance, if Amber O'Neill sitting on Larry Dallas's face, hi Larry, if that wasn't enough to uh, make me run for the hills, Tommy Dreamer emerging a few minutes later definitely would have sealed the deal. So yeah, I think we hightailed it out of there for this match. Um, watching it back last week, it was. Um, yeah, revolting and uh, I jarring to see a display like that, and it just feels so. It just feels so of a different time to uh, to now. Um, it just you could just can't imagine something like that now. But it was fairly like I don't think people would have batted too many eyelids at it back then. Um, as gross as it was, but uh, yeah, they um, they had this, uh, they had the match. The match was going to write home about, and I just felt it was kind of weird seeing Bobby Fish, who very shortly after that became such a noteworthy Ring of Honor guy. Uh, it it was strange seeing him on on this Dragon Gate USA show. Although it was even stranger in one of the uh, commercial videos they aired throughout the show for like previous DGSA and Evolve events. And there's a clip of Bobby Fish doing a diving headbutt on someone. And in the clip, Bobby Fish is clean-shaven and completely bald. And it was... He looks very weird in that clip. So, um, yeah. Those are all my thoughts on this absolute pile of steaming trash. Well, Alan, I will say to back up your point earlier, this is not a product that a premium wrestling company would offer. Actually, maybe it's like a premium services custom style match, if anything, but it is not the Drangate USA that the company was built on. This was, I mean, look, I've complained about Tommy Dreamer on this show. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I ne- I don't want to see 1996 Tommy Dreamer wrestle, let alone 2012 or 2020 Tommy Dreamer. I just, I never want to see that man in a ring again. And this wasn't even a good showcase of Caleb Conley and Scott Reed. This was an abysmal waste of time. And, and it was something that, with this, I mean, I know that there were some card changes, but, like, this match, for, like, how the scene was booked and as a cohesive unit, this completely, like, kind of ruined it in a way, other than, like, all the theatrics. And it was just something that, like, afterwards, it's like, all right, how can you take this unit kind of serious whatsoever with this? So, like, even, like outside like that it stays full and just like grossness of stuff that happened in this match and that post-match is just kind of like well these are like two of the up-and-comers and they've just got completely for lack of better words shit canned by tommy Dreener. and it's and... frustrating because in the opener that's the biggest crowd that ar fox had worked in front of in America because the Atlanta shows he was in like the phrase and the elimination matches and he wasn't booked in Arizona. So, and this is pre Fox and PWG as well. So we're talking about a guy who was on the biggest platform in America he's had and all of his signature moves are really over. AR Fox was clearly catching on with the, the homegrown fan base at the time. And right when the scenes start to become a regular a unit in this promotion where they're on every show, they could have given Scott Reed, especially a real chance to break out, to look strong, to have a great match. And instead he was in what I think is one of the worst matches we've seen up to this point in the promotion's history. Yeah, this is, I, 
absolutely abysmal stuff. There was more gross stuff afterwards with Tommy Dreamer kind of doing Tommy Dreamer things with Shelly Martinez. And then we had a very polite promo from Pac where he saves the day and he says he's here for him. It's finally here for him and Loki and he's excited for this match, my friend. And it's something where like now we have Pac in 2020 and how he's been such a presence at least last year and, and in 2018. It was like I miss him. Heel. Oh, I miss him so much. Like he is by far like right now my favorite wrestler that I'm not seeing any of. And that's in Kira, and that's including Akira Tozawa. Like I miss Pac so much. And like seeing this promo, I was like, oh, it, it's young babyface Pac. It's not the bastard that we get to know. Wrestling is just less fun without Pac in it. it. It's like Alan said, I miss him. Like it sucks that he's not around. And all I have in my notes for this promo is, oh, how far he's come. Yeah, it's it's something. And but even, then we even ha- in... He obviously is a much more confident talker and just a more confident person in the recent years of his career compared to compared to this point. But at the same time, I thought this was a very, very um a very effective promo in just kind of getting across that this was gonna be a real sporting contest that Pac was genuinely excited for. Like he came off really genuine in this promo and I thought it was kind of good for his character and just good for kind of me gaining an interest in him. Absolutely. And it's something where, you know, as like how the way they built this match, it was done really well, especially considering the kind of promo Loki was later on. Loki going like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a warrior. I studied you. And I know that this is going to be an excellent contest. And it's like, both these guys are coming in with like an actual super show kind of feel into this match. So like, this is all really effective stuff. I felt. Yeah, I would agree. I, I like serious sportsman Pac quite a bit. And then we had, speaking of serious sportsman, we had Sammy Callahan in the next match as he faced BB Hulk. BB Hulk got the win of the first flash. And I am someone that, like, DUF by the time, and we're getting to the, the point of DUF where I, during the live following this promotion, I was completely tired of them and Sabu and them and Sabu. But I've realized that. Sammy Callahan in 2011-2012, outside of all the DUF hysterics and, like, a match with, like, him and BB Hulk is really a whole lot of fun, especially with, like, how brutal this match was for someone like Sammy Callahan. I know, Case, you call, you call it the white trash MMA style, and it matched up really well with BB Hulk, I felt like. Yeah, Alan, I was kind of wanting to know your thoughts on the DUF as a whole, because one of the big revelations that I've had re-watching these shows is outside of the Sabu stuff, one, Callahan used to be such an awesome worker, and two, I really like the presentation of the DUF. It feels like an authentic Drangate unit, but is really specialized for the American audience, and that's not... I, I didn't think fondly of the DUF before I rewatched all this stuff, but I really like them on rewatch. Um, I have grown to have a distaste for young Samuel Callahan, both as a wrestler and as just a general entity on this planet in recent years to such a degree that it kind of has made me forget that I was a big fan of Sammy Callahan around this point. And I forgot just how good he was. Like those matches with Finley were amazing he has a bunch of great stuff, and he would have been like one of the guys 
I looked forward to around these times when I'd see him on cards. Um, and as well, B.B. Hulk, when you think of now, you kind of think of Broken Down B.B. Hulk, but this was around probably the peak years of B.B. Hulk. I mean, Matt Blanky, Team Gatelzawa, B.B. Hulk, that's close to the, the best B.B. Hulk we've ever seen. So I saw this match and I was like, okay, this is going to be Milton Special mid-card Sammy Callahan versus B.B. Hulk match. I was thinking about that using my two. 2020 brain watching it as they began to hook me and I was like this is pretty darn and I'll get into more specifics of the match in a sec but just regarding the DUF as as you asked Case um, yeah I I was a big fan of them at the time I don't think the faction amounted to living up to the potential that I think it had but I was a fan of all the members I was a, uh, a big Pinky Sanchez fan. I'm not sure why. Um, the voice <laughs> wrestling guys over the years have made Pinky me... Sanchez fans. Uh, I, I, the voice wrestling guys over the years with their disregard for Pinky Sanchez um, have made me question what it was that I liked about Pinky Sanchez because I don't remember anyone really hating on him at the time, but uh, the guys retroactively just... He gets more than almost any other wrestler they ever talk about whenever his name comes up. So, yeah, I'm not sure, but at the time, I liked him. Um, I was a long-time fan of Arakan. I still think Arakan is, is awesome. Always been a fan. Um, and Sammy, as I mentioned, was was great around, like, from 2009 to 2000, pretty when he signed with WWE, Sammy was awesome. So, yeah, I, I love the idea of the stable. I remember they had a match with Mochizuki and Susumu that you guys have probably already talked about on a previous show. And it just, yeah, it didn't really, it didn't really amount to what I was kind of hoping for. But this match definitely delivered. And, and just, I was taken aback by how hard hitting it was. What a, a great, just kind of grimy fight it was. We, we talked about the ropes earlier and how they were, they plagued the show with all kinds of issues the wrestlers are having throughout. There was a big springboard trip uh, on from BB on this, on the ropes, but I actually have a theory that that was an intentional spot. Sammy was big on working in um, unique uh, spots into his matches around this point in time, like unique realistic spots. And the way they flowed from this, quote, botch, it was almost too perfect, and I was left thinking that this was an intentional uh, thing that happened towards the end of the match. Um, but yeah, and, and if so, really, really smart spot as well. Really, really smart. And yeah, uh, overall, excellent stuff with a uh, anticlimactic finish that was a little. We'll, we'll talk more about the the finish as it relates to the next match as well, but. Didn't really like that was one of the, the the worst things about the show to me. Yeah, I'll let Mike tackle the finish in just a second. I do want to point out, Alan, if you get the chance, I think it's Fearless 2011. It's the same weekend as the, the Susumu and Mochi versus DUF tag, but there's a Callahan versus Mochizuki singles match. Rewatch that match and it will make you hate everything Sammy Callahan's done over the last five years so much more because Sammy's next level good in that match. He hangs with Mochizuki during Mochizuki's peak. And it's just incredible to see how the career has gone ever since. I will, I will check it out. 
it is something about that. I think it was Fearless was that match. It was Fearless 2011 for that that one. So the finish of this match, so everything was all pretty solid until Christina Von Eri, who was saying that she joined a stable, came out, and she got up on the apron. She grabbed a BB Hulk's ball of wine, drank it, and then teased like that she was going to be a DUF, but instead she, sprayed, she spat it into... Uh, Sammy's face, missing him, and then Hulk hit the first flash to win. And then we had a whole bunch of Sabu and DUF stuff where Sammy cuts a promo saying he never should have trusted Christina Von Eri, but he's past that, and he's focusing on Sabu. He's going to end Sabu's career. He calls him out. Then we got the lights out. Sabu attacked. DUF came for the save, and that brought out Fox and Davis leading to the next match. So I, I was, yeah, I was really. getting ahead of myself. I was thinking... Uh... Von Eri was involved in the next match too, but that's the next next match we're gonna next next sadly. Yeah, no, unfortunately, Christina Von Eri is all over this show. It was kind of one of those classic Gabe Sapolsky non-subtlety hammer booking things where he wanted to get one idea over and he drove that idea into the ground in one night. And Christina Von Eri joining Mad Blanky was uh, just. I'm sure it's a fine idea in theory. I don't know why he wanted to do it so badly, but seven Christina Von Eri appearances later, I was over this in one night. Yeah. And it's something that like, I was having a good time with this match. I felt like these two guys worked really well together. And, you know, I mean, as we've been saying all along, Sammy pre WWE was a lot of fun. It's just hard to separate Sammy, the person and Sammy, the wrestler now with that. And that leads us to the street fight. That was John Davis and Sabu defeating DUF with a three seconds around the world on Pinky Sanchez. And I just have no time for Sabu in 2012 and even less of it rewatching it in 2020 personally. Yeah, I mentioned earlier how I was disappointed that they gave the scene a platform, but didn't really give them anything worthwhile to do. And the same can be said for John Davis, who Mike and I have been losing our minds for on rewatch. We're shocked he wasn't picked up by FCW at this point. It just seems like a perfect fit there. And for John Davis to be stuck doing Sabu stuff on WrestleMania weekend was a real bummer for me. Um, I'm trying to find uh, frantically the amazing Sabu tweet from uh, this week. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, um, yeah, he, I, I, I did not. Here, here we go. Today. So he, he uh, Rob Naylor had a amazing gif of a spot from a Sabu Lightning Kid match from pre ECW, um, where Sabu takes a, a crazy dive and lands hard on the floor, catching Lightning Kid. And Sabu retweeted this and said, "Brain damage in my brain." That's why I don't have a big brain anymore. Brains, brains, no brains. <laughs> and then the next tweet, he retweeted. and he, Oh, no, it clicked away. Um, I accidentally clicked a, uh, a trending topic, which was just the word disgusting. So um, oh boy. it's brought up a whole lot of things. But, uh, uh, okay, so Sabu retweeted the same gif and said, Quote, Nick Bockwinkel, three words, came up to me after the match and said, I was the best he's ever seen. And I said, what about my high, H-I, with a capital H, spots, P-L, or saying, I guess that's people are saying, I am killing the biz, dot, dot, dot. 
said anybody who doesn't agree never seen you perform. I guess Bockwinkle said that. Nick oh, Bockwinkle. <laughs> oh, Sabu. <laughs> he, jeez. Uh, I mean, that. I'm kind of sad only we man live in. Cancelled more times than Joe Lanza. I mean. I'm now pulling up his Twitter page and it's really, there's some really like just bad photos that he has most recently put of his feet. And now I'm regretting pulling up this page. Oh boy. Sabu. I don't, I don't think Sabu's confessed to any murders, but Sabu's Twitter has a similar vibe to Marty Jannetty's Facebook. And that I can't believe he publishes everything that he publishes. I just clicked to media and I really shouldn't have after Mike's warning there. You, the, the, the feet are heinous, aren't they? Oh, God. It just, oh, my God. <laughs> Ugh. And unfortunately, those feet, are, those, the, those feet are probably uh, as good or slightly better than what I thought was this tag match that was very uh, 2012 Sabu, very mediocre and unentertaining. Very plotting. And then, as you said, like a big waste of John Davis, who... I was someone who was very anti John Davis in the time, but now I'm like, come on, you, John Davis should this have been a two on one? So John Davis comes out, lays everyone else out, and claims the win, and I've been a better John Davis. I just want to see John Davis destroy people, and that didn't happen this match, and that made me sad. Yeah, it's a, a missed opportunity to once again not feature the young talent that was making Drangate USA interesting. Yeah, I'd say that for sure. Then post match, Sammy jumps Sabu. He had a broken bottle calling back to how he bloodied up and defeated Air Fox on the year-end show in 2011. But instead, he will not let it end on a on like this. And then he elbowed him. And that led to the Loki promo that we talked about a little bit before, where Loki, the historian of wrestling, Alan, we uh, we discovered that during one of the shows that we, we've done previously, that Loki knows everything about every wrestler. and that, And therefore, he is the definitive source here. And he, and he was really excited for the moment, and he knowed, he recognizes skill when he sees it, and really great job and the very low-key way of building up this match. Yeah, I could, uh, I could bust out my low-key impression, but uh, my, my voice is a little scratchy at, the, at, at this late stage in the day. I think I'll have to keep it on, under, under wraps, but a, a quality promo like the Pac one earlier to just really set the tone for their match and their promos really fit with the way the match was wrestled, which we'll get to. And I, I just really liked the whole presentation. This was at, at the end of this show, I was left with positive feelings for Loki. And he is a man who um, more than most wrestlers, I go back and forth on having positive feelings for the man versus negative feelings for the man. And, uh, this was definitely a positive impression he left with me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the A promo worth you going back and checking is the end of the show promo on Golden Gate, where he basically gives a book report on every wrestler in the ring talking about battle arts with Masaki Mochizuki. Masaki Mochizuki had a very bemused <laughs> look on his face. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> that, okay, I'm going to do a low-key impression now. When I had a... Um, I had a 40-minute conversation with Loki um, on the afternoon of a WXW show in 2017, um, which was the most intense 40 minutes of my life. (laughs) He was on crutches after having uh, um, 
blow. Uh, I, I don't want to say blowing out his knee because that was we thought the word was and the way he described it was he blew out his knee on the first night. Um, but he was back wrestling pretty soon again after that weekend. So I think he might have just not wanted to do a job or something like that and uh, took the rest of the weekend off and was going around on crutches. But anyway, um, so I had this conversation with him and um, it's super intense. And at one point, he just just as a complete sidebar just uh, goes um Something something came up about like uh, stealing people's um, moves or something like that, and he was like, "I was brought up in the the New York hip hop scene. I know you don't take another man's material." <laughs> and Finn Balor, <laughs> I see him. People don't think I see everything, but I see. I have my eye. And he points to his eye, and it's like, and it just like really slowly points to his eye and looks directly into my eyes. I have my eye on everything and everyone. I'm Finn Balor taking my move that wouldn't fly on the streets. <laughs> just like... <laughs> what a legend. What a legend. So yeah, Loki has his eye on everything and everyone, even if you don't think he does. <laughs> I love keys so much. I look, I just, I've said it before. I think wrestling needs more low keys and less Dan, the dads. And I am all for, Oh, Oh, for sure. <laughs> Nothing against Dan, the dad. I actually couldn't even pick Dan, the dad out of a lineup. So, um, but, uh, I, I, I definitely agree. Uh, Loki, um, for me as a fan, like maybe not as like uh, Dan the Dad is probably more pleasurable person to have around a locker room than Loki. Although I should say that weekend in WXW, Loki was getting rave reviews from everyone, management to young wrestlers to anyone who had any interaction with him. He was just a complete gentleman. A complete professional and so helpful and took an interest in everything and was giving so many people feedback and he was he just rave reviews across the board for Loki that weekend um but uh he the other thing he bamboozled me with uh on in that conversation was um he was talking about his his mentor he was like my mentor and I and uh, I was like he's referenced his mentor now a few times. I was like, are you talking about Manny Fernandez or Homicide? And he goes, no, no, no. You know who my mentor is. And I was like, uh, no, sir. And he goes, my mentor. Oh, no, I'm forgetting the guy's name now. Oh, I can't, I can't end the quote. Um, uh, ECWA, prom- yeah, that, my mentor was Jim Kettner. <laughs> everything about the business because and he leans in and kind of brings his head down because that's what this is a business <laughs> and i was like okay loki right on jim kentner my mentor <laughs> my man jim kentner that rules i love every loki story i hear that is that is so great. Oh, gosh. 
I miss him so much. I, I, I hope low-key wherever he is is, you know, keeping it up, you know, keeping his eye on the business, you know. I don't know if Jim Kettner's still with us, but I'm hoping that is the case. But Loki is watching us right now as we record this podcast, Mike. <laughs> you know, I'm looking into my webcam right now. There's no light on, Alan, but I'm suspecting that somewhere with like spyware, Loki has a camera on everyone. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm going to say things appropriately because there's probably other than uh, Masato Yoshino and Misaki Mochizuki, there's no person I want to let down less than Loki. Let's talk about I, I, Masaki Mochizuki. He's in the next match. He is. The next match was my match of the weekend during the time. And, you know, eight years later, still is. Masaki Mochizuki defeats Akira Tozawa, the Senkaku Gary, to the face. And I remember just losing my mind in the crowd. Alan and I having our telepathic connection. And just seeing someone that I over the last few years really come around thinking that is like one of the smartest wrestlers ever to exist. And then like seeing how he worked the match here again, more brilliant stuff here. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to put in words how much I enjoyed this match. It's two of my favorite wrestlers of all time going up against them one-on-one. Just was a little disappointed. We had some Christina, Christina Von Ari in this. Alan, is this the best Mochizuki match you've seen in person? Um, Hmm, great question. Uh, I think the best one he had in the UK was probably the Susumu match um, in Cambridge. And both times I've been to Japan on Dragon Gate shows, he's been in um, multi-man tags, albeit very fun multi-man tag. Actually, you know what? On the, the last show, he was in a, a, a quick... Uh, match with it was a singles match with um oh no it was a tag actually sorry but it was it was quick and it ended in a no contest with um uh okuda on the other side and they just were throwing hands and had to be separated that was fun but it wasn't as good as this obviously um oh you know again probably not as good as this but i saw him against minoru tanaka on a no sour show oh that's right you were at that show yes that was really good too especially in person like literally like i know that was a match Joe Lanza was hyped for because they're two Joe Lanza favorites. And I hyped it up when I came back. So when that match surfaced online, he was excited to see it. And he was uh, kind of disappointed by it. Um, but honestly, it was one of those matches that I think gained so much from literally sitting 10 feet from the ring, watching these two in person and the physicality and the intensity that was on display throughout the match. It just It doesn't come through on a nico nico recording you know so um that was really cool um especially seeing those guys with their with their history that they had with each other but yeah i'm mochizuki wasn't on any other mania weekends wasn't he not so this was probably the susumu match in cambridge was really good too so it's it's one and one a in whatever order i put them in i'm not sure yeah, this uh, blew me away. I had not seen this match before, and it's, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. These guys always had good matches. The October 2011 is a classic. I think it's October 2014. They wrestle again in Cork and Hall, and it's just a mind-blowingly great, and this is on the level as those two matches. Tozawa, Tozawa's so over on these shows. He is far and away 
the most over guy, despite the Christina Von Eri stuff. And despite really trying to lean into Mad Blanky being a heel unit, Tozawa is getting the strongest reactions out of anybody on these shows. And he's getting cheered in the process. I went four and a half stars on this match. I thought it was, I, I, I just loved it so much. It's exactly what I wanted from these two guys. You could tell they structured it differently from that October 2011 Corican title match. Like that was wrestled like a world title match that you'd have in front of fans that were familiar with you intently. This was wrestled like what it was a match with in front, like as a showcase match in front of a crowd that maybe weren't fully familiar with the guys, especially Mochizuki. And boy was the the proof in the pudding of how good this match was by the fact that it went from me and Mike being the only ones chanting and cheering for Mochi at the start of the match to by the end of the match the crowd going crazy for both guys and huge chants for both guys and um big reactions to both their signature spots they just crafted a perfect match in terms of slowly bringing the fans on board, letting them figure out what Mochizuki was all about, and then once they had them in the palm of their hand, boom, just hitting the accelerator on it and just making them go crazy. It was just such a smartly worked match for the position they were in. They they thought about it in terms of, okay, what's our situation here? What makes sense? Like, if they were to just do the same match they did at the October Corkin, it wouldn't have been suitable. They did something that was exactly right for what they were, what they, the situation they were in. And it, it was great. It was, it was really great, a really intelligent, really enjoyable wrestling match. And, and on top of that, like, absolutely, I, I co sign out everything Alan said about this was not worth to like that they assumed a lot of familiarity, but they did have some nice throwbacks and callbacks for people that intently watched them and especially their October match, because the big story about Tozawa was he was not able to get the straight jacket on him. And the idea was that like, there's a time where Tozawa would like try to go for it. But Mochizuki, I remember this being such a big near fall in the October match where Mochizuki worms one of his arms out and that gets him the ability to kick out. Like and it was the first time that someone kicked out of the move because he was able to worm his arm out. And they they did enough like teases in this in this match that was like they they weren't just operating on, okay, this is a this is a show in front of people that aren't familiar with us both live and on the internet. But they also like did like little things in this match that I was like, all right, they're playing into their overall story that I just was enthralled by that. Yeah, it's as good of a match I've seen from Dragon Gate USA. I mean, we had the main event of the Los Angeles show, which I think it went four and three quarters on the uh, Shima and Ricochet versus Mochi and Susumu match. But this is uh, as a high oh, level wow. singles I, match. I need to I need to check that out. I don't remember that match. But if you're saying four and three quarters, I need to watch that again. Yeah, open the Golden Gate. We talked about the 2012 version of the show specifically because 2013 has the uh, Tozawa versus Johnny Mundo match, which isn't as strong. Or that whole show isn't as strong. But open the Golden Gate is as strong of a show as Gate USA put on outside of 2013 WrestleMania weekend and then like the first three shows. That whole show top to bottom is That's got Pac and Tozawa, doesn't it? Yes, it's got the Pac yes, and Tozawa rematch, uh, BB Hulk versus Loki, and a really good Sammy Callahan AR Fox match. Perhaps the best tables match I've seen between Sammy Callahan and AR Fox. 
Yeah, that whole show top to bottom is, again, it's as strong as anything Dragon Gate USA ever did. It just was a truly great show, and I was glad that to see how this played off, and this would pay off the next night when we get into that next week. Post-match, Christina Von Airy has a message from Misaki Mochizuki, and it was a strike to the groin. It was an awkward message because she was like, there was just a lot of awkwardness with Christina Von Airy joining Mad Blanky. First of all, with when she joined up with BB Hulk, they just looked really awkward beside each other. He didn't really know how to interact with her. She was trying to interact in ways with him. She didn't work. And then when she came out with Tozawa, um, he was like trying to do the like normal kind of like you see a lot in Japanese wrestling. You see photographers at ringside. You kind of do a, a pose in your team pose or whatever for the photographers get get some good good shots. He was trying to kind of lead her into doing one of those with him, and it was just really awkward. She didn't know where to stand, and he didn't know what to do. It was just very, yeah, very awkward. And then. Um, uh, she shouts at like at one point in the match when the referee is talking to Tozawa. Now, if this was tongue in cheek, it's probably witty, but I don't think it was. She goes, "He can't even speak English." When the ref was talking to Tozawa, and was like, at this stage, Tozawa was pretty much fluent in English, as <laughs> you would see from like promos and just his general in-ring banter. He was always speaking English, so um, I I give her the benefit of the doubt and maybe say that was um, that was. Uh, just a tongue-in-cheek but i don't think it was um and then the other thing was uh, in this promo i got irrationally annoyed when she was like this is a message for you from the mad blanky and i was like oh the mad blanky oh no if you're gonna join a stable just at least know the name of it do we know what why she was brought in. I, I was talking to Mike before Alan joined our Skype call that was Von Eri dating Sammy Callahan at the time. Like I just, I mean, she's talented. I, I don't have an issue with her, but I'm trying to figure out why Gabe felt the need to inject her into Mad Blanky. I have zero idea other than she was available. And I mean, she's done DGUSA stuff before, so that would make as much sense as anything to me. Yeah, she was starting to kind of get a bit of a name as as one of the... She was on the West Coast, I think, around this time. So she was kind of starting to get a name out there a little bit and um, becoming one of the kind of... Like in a, a women's scene, which had a much more shallow depth pool back in 2012 versus the last few years, um, she was someone who was gaining a lot of attention and, and bookings are at least very much starting to. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably the rationale there. But it's just so it's so awkward. And, like, also another thing that happened with her, and, and it's not – I don't have the intent to entirely bury her, but Tozawa was like, oh, I know how to get people into this, and I'm going to be, like, a weirdo being Tozawa. Like, as soon as they, like, they came out of the entranceway and after the awkward thing, like, he, he like, reached and did – and gave her a hug, and she just had the look of, I don't know what's going on right now. Like, I don't think she uh, like was aware that Tozawa is a weirdo and will do stuff like that. Yeah, she came across she came across in all her actions with Tozawa and, and BB Hulk. Like, she hadn't watched any of their stuff and she hadn't spent any time around them. And I actually like Christina Von Eri as, as a, from what I've seen of her as a performer over the years. Um, not, not seen much over the years, but well, generally I, I've liked her stuff. Um, pretty decent wrestler. Um, uh, the to me, if you're gonna get a 
spot, a central spot on one of the company's biggest shows of the year, WrestleMania weekend, and you're going to be linked up with the top guys from the Japanese promotion. I mean, at a bare minimum, I would expect you go into that having watched hours of tape of these guys knowing everything about them. She should know how Mad Blanky formed, the history of that faction. She should be listening to iHeartDG podcasts. Like, that is, to me, a bare minimum expectation. Now, to be fair, again, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. This could have been something that was landed on her on, like, day of the show. So if that's the case, then, yeah, entirely it's entirely kind of plausible that she'd have such a, a lack of chemistry with these guys and not kind of under, just kind of, yeah, not really understand different things about them or their characters. So maybe that was the case. But if it was something she was given a tip off to in the weeks leading up, she should have been um, absolutely familiar with everything about Hulk, Talawa, Dragon Gate as a whole. No, absolutely. It's something that it felt like and a lot of things that has been an issue with DJSA is something someone that, for lack of better words, is glued onto something without actually having the right fit or awareness. So it feels awkward. And I feel like that that was very, very evident here. Yeah. And, and uh, then, oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was going to say, unless y'all had anything else to add on to this match, this is, in my opinion, without like th- that United Gate match notwithstanding this is so far the match of the year in DGUSA. I would agree with that. And unfortunately the Johnny Vandal Samurai Del Sol match did not reach those heights. Yeah. So this was a quick squash Uh, Samurai Del Sol after his really surprisingly just awkward and bad performance with uh, Masato Yoshino the night before defeated Johnny Vandal in three minutes, 15 seconds with a poison arana. Johnny Vandal, Florida guy, I, when I would go to shows in Florida, I would see a, a lot of him, and he was always just kind of there, and, you know, did not really add much to the squash, but at least Samurai Del Sol, after how bad the uh, match was with Masato Yoshino, at least, like, this, like, kind of, at least with how DGUSA was, like, set up, in my opinion, like, set set him back on the right path, because he needed it after the match in, in Hollywood. Yeah, an impressive squash match. And and like you said, Del Sol really needed this after his debut performance. Uh, Samurai Del Sol was someone who I was so excited about coming out <laughs> of these shows. Like, just as 2012 marched on, he was he was one of the absolute exciting guys on the indie scene. But it all happened so quickly for him. Like, it was a blur. Like, he came from nowhere. I was like, who's this guy? It's, like, it just all happened so quickly with Samurai Del Sol that... It almost seems crazy to me that it was like 2012, like he was around back in 2012. It feels like it was way more recent. But I mean, he had signed with WWE by what, 2014. He was June like, 2013. Um, he doesn't even make it to 2014. He's ahead of the indie signing boom. He's really almost an OG NXT guy who was on, I so, think, on the first arrival even. So when did he go through all his stuff with like being, um, being uh oh what you call it um, octagon jr octagon jr or no it was it was flamita that had like the wasn't it flamita that had the the like the the altercation with the original octagon which one of the guys had the altercation so 
before this or like during this time that we're talking about in 2012 2013 uh conan was super high on samurai del sol for obvious reasons brought him in and he did like a week of octagon jr as octagon jr was paired off with pentagon with penta l m and then he signed and left and then he brought in Flamita. and then octagon was the one that that was the time that octagon and some goons pulled out pulled a gun on Flamita at a signing and took off his mask so weird history with dragon system people and octagon to say the very least that is literally the saddest video I've ever seen. Uh, Flamita essentially getting jumped. That bums me out so much because I've never heard a bad word about Flamita. He seems like the nicest guy, and that oh, situation was just awful. I had, a, I had a really nice chat with him at the WXW. He was um, he was so nice. Um, I, I, I I brought up UT to him, and he was just like he was like, "Oh, poor UT, always injured." <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> Oh poor! I mean, that's like the natural reaction to it, right? Oh UT, oh poor UT, always hurt. Oh man, I miss Flamita too. Like talking about people that like you miss, like Flamita now with everything. I mean, luckily it seems like he's not done anything at all. Like I know Bandito was doing similar, but I guess Flamita maybe he's getting more jacked in it in these times. I would like to see Flamita like show back up in Ring of Honor and just suddenly just has like another thirty he's, pounds of muscle on him. He signed the Ring of Honor contract right before the pandemic, didn't he? He signed All three of them he did. signed with Ring of Honor, but Flamita got hurt right before things shut down. So the shutdown has actually been a benefit to him because he's really missed no time. But I think he had a pretty severe leg injury in January or February of this year. Okay, yeah, I, I often think that with, like, some of the guys, like, uh, Mark Davis is another one I was thinking of recently, and Naoya Nomura in, in all Japan. These guys who had really bad injuries to start of the year, or maybe were fake, like, in Nomura's case, was like, will I have the surgery and be out for ages, or do I try and fight through? And it's like, all these guys who missed all this time, it's like, what did they really miss, you know? So it's, um, it kind of feels, uh, uh, this year was definitely if you're gonna have to like lose a year of your career to injury this was definitely the year to lose i mean uh i i just pulled up flamita's twitter just to see how he is just check out on him uh roh is selling a t-shirt of a penguin and a flamita mask that he's eating a slice of pizza that's oh, absolutely adorable i i saw that that was um yes yeah, so uh um that ROH put up, like, they had some kind of video, music video kind of thing they did with all their talents during lockdown. And there was a thing with Flamita and the, the pizza and the penguin. And I was like, what is all this about? And I, I tweeted about it and I said it was amazing. And uh, my my good close pal from Germany, uh, D-Rotation, who would have spent a ton of time with Flamita. Would yeah, be good, Yeah, good pals with him. He DM'd me and he explained to me this penguin pizza thing. I'm trying to pull it up here now. Give me two seconds. Um, he I might said, buy this t-shirt. I like this t-shirt so much. And I don't buy many wrestling t-shirts that aren't like Dragon Gate t-shirts. This t-shirt is that good. Case. Yeah, no, I've seen it. I love it. It kind of has the same energy as the, I think it's the Naruki Doi baseball t-shirt. Is that something that exists? The Flamita penguin pizza t-shirt was, it gave me a similar vibe. I have the Naruki Doi penguin t-shirt. Um, the, me and Joey Bay, uh, not intentionally, both wore our Naruki Doi penguin t-shirts. Yeah, to, it is uh, a penguin t-shirt. Okay, or, yeah. Or sorry, it's the uh, 
It's the Tokyo Yakult Swallow, some kind of baseball team or something. Yeah, he's yeah. Okay, I wasn't crazy. I knew there was a Doi baseball related T-shirt. Yeah, because it's like Doi gotten that was brought out in his gear to do like a maybe throw the first pitch or whatever at some baseball game, and then he he worked spots with the mascot. So Dragon Gate, as it is wont to do, capitalized on this by putting out merch. Uh, of like doi versus the, the the mascot and it's such an awesome t-shirt and i got one and joey bay got one um and we both wore them to the same dragon gate show in uh 2000 and um, 2016 and a group of ladies uh, a group of japanese ladies came up to us and very excitedly pointed at our t-shirts and asked to get a photo with us <laughs> I remember him, like, giving the swallow a muscular bomb. Like, it was nuts. Something like that. Um, yeah, I, Rotation just sent me a, like, screenshot of uh, interactions in Spanish, DMs in Spanish that he had with Flamita. And he says, I swear he asked me every night if I could order him some pizza with ketchup. And uh, it's their conversation here, which is... I, I, oh yeah, pizza, ketchup, uh, some, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Flamita likes ketchup and pizza and penguins, I guess. <laughs> what a absolute legend there. Hey, so. that's how you, that's how you put on that mask like he did, I guess. Lots of, lots of pizza. I mean, there you go. There you go. And I have ordered that t shirt while you were looking it up, Alex. Amazing. Now. That was some quick work, Mike. I mean, you know, you keep the PayPal logged on, you get it ready to go, and I was like, okay, I I love Flamita, I miss Flamita, that t-shirt rules, I'm getting that, so I'll be very proud, and if I'll probably, I might get that t-shirt before this episode goes up, I will take a photo of me in the t-shirt in the tracksuit to fully endorse all of this, so I'm, I'm elated right now, and then I'm also somewhat elated, because the next promo was Uha Nation crestfallen, saying he might be out, out for a while with a tour tendon, He'll be back sooner rather than later because he is the future of wrestling and he is the one man nation who is un- undestructible with liberty and justice for no man. Alan, Uha Nation's I, I, promos. I don't, I don't think Alan's heard the episode where I, I dubbed the debut Uha promo as the greatest promo I've ever heard slightly unironically. I'm so glad Uha brought back the line with liberty and justice for no man. I think that is terrific. I loved this promo, and I'm so upset that he got hurt when he did because his career was about to take off in such a big way. He really, it really was amazing how he just picked up where he left off when he came back. Like that year out really doesn't seem to have affected his trajectory at all, both in the US and Japan. Like he he had had one tour of Japan. He was on the shows at the end of 2011. I remember the Christmas shows, he was on those. And then he missed a year, and then he was pretty much back in Japan and back getting a push in the U.S. as soon as he started wrestling again. It was like this guy was such an uh, such a once in a generation talent that it was like impossible for him to lose momentum. Everyone was just itching to get him back into the mix as soon as as soon as possible. But uh, I remember him going around on his crutches at intermission, and I was just so sad for him. And I I went to him and I was like. Oh, dude, you were doing so well. I'm so sorry this happened. He was, he had such a smile on his face. He was like, so, he was like, oh, we won't let this set me back. He was just, had such a positive attitude. And it was like, 
I oh, couldn't help but really like the guy. And uh, I remember he spent uh, the summer of 2012 um, whilst nursing his uh, his knee injury. He spent the summer watching the, the Euro 2012 soccer tournament. And then he came on my show for a special uh, soccer edition of the DKP where we talked about uh, Euro 2012 in detail. I am going to have to go back and find that. I have not heard that DKP episode, and I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> that is that is probably there on the Observer uh, radio show archives. Yes, summer 2012, find that DKP. It's it's there. Me and Uha Nation talk soccer. I Incredible. Mean, that, sounds, that sounds like an absolute delight. And what was also an absolute delight, we've been talking about this match all show. Loki defeats Pack in 23 minutes and 48 seconds with the Warriors' way, and... This was like a WrestleMania match, WrestleMania weekend match that lived up to its potential, like a one-time only, first-time match, and it was just truly exceptional. And, you know, the way that they built this up to and the way that low-key was at this time, it felt like something real special. Alan, before I give my takes, I'd like to hear yours. This strikes me as the type of match that if it happened in the modern wrestling scene it would have so much praise heaped on it as people get more into like as just hard-nosed timothy thatcher style grappling and stuff has kind of become more appreciated in in recent years um with kind of a lot of wrestling moving towards silliness and um and being a little unrealistic and, and more spectacular, but maybe not having as much of the grit and uh, just real intensity that you you might want. This is a match that I think would really be appreciated more now than it was then, because I think you probably got, I don't know, maybe um, it this might not have stood out as much back then as, as it does now and or as it would now. And God, it was just so good. I remember, I specifically remember one the, the thing I think about always when I think about this match is early in the match, them doing the the bridge spot with the knuckle locks and Pac bridging up whilst Loki was on top of him, kicking his thighs. And I remember those kicks sounding like gunshots as he did them and just... That is a memory that stuck with me, and it's what I I think about uh, whenever I think of this match. But I had forgotten a lot of the kind of closing scenes of the match and how it escalates and builds to a, a really great finish. And um, and it's not even like like the finish happens, and it's not. I, I would say it's almost. It, done in a way that's somewhat untraditional like Loki kind of takes his time before hitting his finish and you're like thinking Pop must be moving or something here or um but it was just really emphatic it was just done slowly and methodically and and when Loki hit that double stomp it felt it, it's over and it was decisive and definitive and it showed he was the better man on this night but really well done i i loved everything about this um i i would say watching the show last week um 
as a as a viewer on tape, I in twenty twenty eyes, I enjoyed this match as much as I enjoyed Mochizuki Tozawa. I wouldn't say I enjoyed one more than the other. They were different kind of matches, but I enjoyed them as much. I'd say live, I probably definitely was more excited about the Mochizuki match, but on tape, eight years later, they're neck and neck for me. I will say there's nothing in wrestling, especially in American wrestling, that really feels the way this match felt. It's it, the grit is the right word. There was so much grit and intensity in this match, and it was really I, not what I was expecting from this. I, it was such a slow build that ended up being a very climactic match, but it really took a long time to get there. And I'm, I think, lower on it than both of you. I'm only at three and three quarters for this. Now, granted, very good to great match, but I didn't, I, I really respected what they did, but I didn't entirely love it. But the one positive that I will take away is that, and Mike kind of alluded to this when he introduced the match, there was an atmosphere for this match that Dragon USA hasn't had in years at this point. This had the kind of crowd feel that like Shingo versus Davey had on the second show. I think the crowd knew they were watching a really big match and they appreciated that. I really liked the match. I just didn't love it as much as Alan or I'm assuming Mike. Yeah, I was higher than you on that case. I was four flat, but it's something that like with like a match and like this is something that I've talked about before where I've come to the realization that my personal wrestler of the 2010s, like taking Okada and Tanahashi off the table because like you kind of have to with this is pack. And this is a match that like further solidifies it with me just because of like how deliberate this was. And the idea of very like much so like pack showing that he could be gritty, that the idea of pack as a high flyer is just something that's kind of put over, but it's not really the case here. And then, you have that going the same time that Loki's like very clearly being like, all right, I feel confident enough in my skills that I have to survive this guy. I have to survive this guy. And then taking the moment, as Alan said, kind of letting it sink in that he has the kill shot in range and then jumping off and giving one of the best double stomps I've seen in a long time onto pack and winning definitively. This is the good stuff. This is like, this is the DGUSA stuff that rewatching and reassessing and like, putting back in the context i'm very happy that like live in person of course mochizuki tozawa was in the was two matches ago like that was my match there but like watching this here i feel like i have a like, deeper appreciation for it and i think that's why i kind of came out of this match feeling and the thing that really stands out about this match is just how much everything means in it because just the littlest things the littlest counters the littlest uh, changes in momentum everything is fought for and is you used the word deliberate that's exactly the word for it mike it's just everything means something because nothing is done for the sake of it and whether it's a quote rest hold or whether it's a um simple change of, of position or reversal on the mat everything is done in a way that it just puts it over they, they they put it over that what they're doing every motion means something you know and that i think stands out a lot in independent wrestling uh especially nowadays so yeah i um i just yeah i thought the world is like you you could see matches that would be 
done move for move the same as this that would be boring, but it would just be because the guys weren't putting their all into making all those things mean something, and that's what they were doing here. Like, Loki was... And it's something he does really well. He was just drawing you into uh, his match and the situations that he found himself in this match. And it's, again, something that I think would probably work really well live more so than tape. Um, Like that, uh, um, what was the match I referenced earlier? Uh, The Mochizuki versus Minoru Tanaka match. Just when you see that level of physicality and intensity from such close range at... It really just sucks you in that bit more. About that bit more. Absolutely. And then post match, we got another great Loki promo saying that he's not one for words, but this was incredible. This was. <laughs> oh, and I'll tell you. Can I tell you another lie? Um, Lenny Leonard, or it might have been Eric Cannon on commentary. One of the two. I think it was Eric Cannon. Had the gall to say. These are the kind of matches, Loki versus Pac, where it's two guys, they just want to test themselves against each other. These are guys who, this isn't like boxing, where you got a Mayweather or a Pacquiao, and you got money and ego standing in the way. No, not with these guys. I'm like, yeah, sure, not with Loki. Certainly not someone who'd have money or ego stand in the way of putting together a great match. I mean, I'd, certainly they didn't stand in the way of all those incredible epic Loki versus Samoa Joe matches that we got over the years in Ring of Honor um, that Gabe Sapolsky wanted to book so often. And, and Oh, all those great matches in PWG where Loki defended the PWG title and, and dropped it to Claudio Castagnoli when he was rising through the promotion. Um, oh, and of course, uh, Loki versus Matt Riddle of Bloodsport. How great did that turn out? I mean, Loki <laughs> never won to let ego or money get in the way of putting together the best matches that the fans want to see. <laughs> Loki also says in this promo, it's a really eventful Loki promo where he says that uh, for as passionate as he is in the ring, he doesn't do this for himself. He does it for the fans, which I feel like is objectively untrue. We just ran down a list. of. I, I feel like he might think that, though. Yeah. Oh, he, he entirely thinks that. I think that he probably thinks what the fans want is exactly what he wants. So, <laughs> well, that kind of goes back to Chuck Taylor's theory that he said of like Chuck Taylor just wants to know what Loki's version of wrestling is. Like, if Loki was booking, what it, what does that look like? Because Chuck Taylor's never been able to figure out what it is that Loki is really striving for, other than not doing the job. The other <laughs> thing that Loki was striving for in this promo was he said he wanted an evolved title. Something that we would get a year later, speaking of Sammy Callahan doing contrived work shoot spots, uh, I noticed Gabe did not bring in the Evolve title until after Loki was gone. Probably a <laughs> smart move by Gabe. Gosh, I, I, I want to see what Loki produce is. Like, I, I'm not certain that it's for me, but I'm wondering what, like, what oh, his I'm mind is for me. I, I, I'd be buying, I'd be the first one buying that ticket. Yeah, I'm with 4L here. I think I want, a, like, if we're going to do, if we're going to keep doing Spring Break and Dan Housen's going to get his own show and Effie's going to get his own show, I, let me see what Loki Produce likes, lo- looks like. Loki Produce uh, hyphen 
gentlemen, we are here to fight. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the big thing that would have to happen with Loki Produce is that he's going to be wrestling. He's going to be booking, but I also want him to be ring announcing. That would be huge. He's been trying to get that voiceover career off the ground. I mean, I, I do know someone that, that has that was in along with David Bixman, was watching the Loki motivational talks, and it would it was even weirder than how Bixenspan described it. <laughs> what, what a... Uh, we are blessed that Loki has graced DGUSA, and then we could like, just get a little glimpse in his mind and as he's getting glimpses of us through our web cameras. So I'm very, very elated about that. So the main event... More than was... a glimpse, Mike. I am seeing <laughs> all of you. <laughs> I, I I hope Loki's enjoying my bright pink tracksuit that I have on right now. I I, I suit up for the sh- I sh- I suit up for big time shows and this is a big time show, and with this is a big time match. The vacant opened the United Gate. It was the World One International team of Masato Yoshino and Ricochet defeating the Ronin team of Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor. Yoshino gets the win with the sole Naciente in 19 minutes and 42 seconds. It's you. It's something that's very interesting of how uh, Yoshino has been portrayed in the company and, and like how much that like they've got over the soul the soul nasciente uh, Kai soul nasciente Kai and that he doesn't even need it for Chuck Taylor he just outright taps him out with his arm triangle using his legs like a dork. I, I don't know about you guys I loved this match I thought this was so great up until. Chuck Taylor grabbing the title belt and kind of acting like he was going to hit someone with it and then not really doing anything, which led directly to the finish. I thought this match was incredible, and it continues to befuddle me why Drangate did not like Chuck Taylor, because I think he's such a good opponent for all of the native talent. Oh, I was going to come in with the uh, I was going to come in with a very opposite point and you, you beat me to it. So now we have some controversy here, here Mike. I was actually going to point out that I thought Chuck looked awesome wrestling Ricochet in this match um, as they have such great history. And I thought he looked thoroughly outclassed and out of his depth in their Yoshino. So um, I'm on a different page with you there. I, I will say I'm probably letting one particular spot um uh, color my opinion maybe too much on that um especially now that you've said otherwise i'm thinking maybe i'm i'm just letting this one spot anchor me down but it was a bad one for taylor um yoshino was going for the uh typical speed muscle spot where he drop kicks one guy and senton's the other and gargano was or ricochet was holding chuck in place and Yoshino was coming off for the the missile dropkick, and for whatever reason, Chuck decides to like take a step or two at a position, and Yoshino yeah. can't really reach him proper on the dropkick, and it causes him to then bump weird on the senton, and you could tell it kind of rattled him. And the next time we get a close-up of Yoshino's face, he did not look like a happy man. And there is a slap prior to it. When Yoshino does this kind of flurry of slaps prior to the uh, Torbellino, um, there is a slap that Chuck Taylor eats that looked uh, looked maybe something similar to what was seen on uh, the Miami Beach later that night uh, with Larry <laughs> Dallas. But um uh, yeah, he took one from Yoshino for sure. And Yoshino is known as kind of like a perfectionist, a guy that things don't go wrong with. And he didn't seem happy to 
have that spot kind of a not look good, but also put him and Gargano, who's the guy lying on the ground, at risk. So I don't know what Chuck was playing at there, but Gargano, I am, um, I went back and forth on throughout this throughout this match, thinking, oh my god, Gargano looks amazing. To oh my god, Gargano's stuff looks just so light and phony and ugh. And I realized that. I really like Johnny Gargano when he's like doing fast-paced, um, fast-paced grappling and counters and reversals and stuff. I think he's incredibly, always incredible at that. Um, when he's doing kind of strike-based sequences and stuff, it can tend to look way too overly choreographed, and and his strikes just never really look good enough to me. They look like they couldn't break an egg and um yeah so i went back and forth on gargano i, I thought yoshino looked amazing throughout the match i thought ricochet looked really good throughout the match but overall it did all come together to being a really fun bout and i i know live i was i was giving it the all standing ovation with everyone else at that the, the point where the crowd really got into it so i was certainly into it live but uh i saw some flaws in it watching it back uh, eight years later for sure I will yeah, say before, think... real quick, before Mike gives his thoughts on the match, uh, th- you're, the spot that you were referring to, you're right. I guess I, I couldn't tell who was at fault there, but now that you explained it, it does seem like Chuck Taylor's fault. And I know when Masato Yoshino eventually retires, I've been working on a piece for VoicesOfWrestling.com talking to people that have wrestled Yoshino in the past, and a reoccurring theme that came up is uh, Masato Yoshino's perfection. And some of these stories I've heard about Yoshino drilling perfection into the minds of other wrestlers is truly incredible. So uh, that slap is 100% intentional. Yoshino could not have been happy about that. Oh, no. That, that's that's, um, that's an amazing idea for an article. I'm really looking forward to seeing that when you're, you're done with it. It's all a matter of when Masato Yoshino decides to retire. It, it was almost a moment where it could have happened very instantly. And, and I remember being on the side of Case going, like, hearing Case go, like, oh, God, I hope this is not happening this weekend. Yeah, there was a little bit of a scare during the Dangerous Gate Cage match when I thought I might have to rush to finish an article because Yoshida was going to retire on the spot. But it all, it all ended up working out. But, Mike, your thoughts on this main event? So, yeah, uh, that, that missile senton spot was so awkward because – it did not look like because it was very clear that Chuck took the step back and it did not look clean. And instead, it was really Yoshino just taking a back bump from the top rope. And you, you know, this is the last weekend that Masato Yoshino flies over for the U.S. shows, and we've known that Masato Yoshino kind of got tired of it and kind of got frustrated. But between this happening in the main event here, and then the night before, uh, Alan, did you ever watch the uh, Masato Yoshino versus Samurai Del Sol match? Um, I don't know if I ever saw that show, to be honest. I don't think I did. I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle of me getting back from America and kind of catching up on stuff. And I, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that show ever made the made the priority list. Uh, it is probably the worst match I've ever seen Masato Yoshino take part in. Not No fault of his own that you can see him getting not just like visually hot like how he did about chuck taylor here where he where there was like a camera like that panned up to him and he looked like that he was like about to storm out of the ring that mad so i can see why he was pretty much done at this point with going to america but yeah like the the thing that that struck me really here was in like the opening moments and like the opening things ricochet going for all shima submissions i thought that was kind of like oh okay that's a neat 
that's a neat like wink wink nod nod there but it, it's something where like this came together and that that one like missile sentine spot was so like different from the rest of the uh, of like this is whereas like gargano and taylor are like two people that like chuck taylor very rarely i feel like in this promotion feels like he's outclass i mean part of that might also be because he's been doing variants of lucha rest for like the last like six years at this point but it's interesting to see this here and then see like ricochet at this at this point he's been he he is still like on his ascent and be like oh yeah no this guy is going to be the person i'm going to be some one of the most frustrated people in the world for his for his professional decisions he makes throughout this and you know the whole like taylor belt spot towards the end i felt like that knowing what comes after it i was a little bit more okay with it than in the moment eight years ago but i came around to it that like when you like look at like the three highlight matches on this show this definitely all held up and i was really appreciating it by the time it was over and you know this was like the decision that they needed to make here i'm totally okay with that especially with what happened post-match like it made sense why it would be like well i guess we're going to keep the belts on uh ricochet and we'll just toss yoshino in there all things considered what did you guys think about the post-match the chuck taylor turn after uh well i can summarize the whole thing shima came out he said he respects ronan they proved themselves to him uh, he shook hands with johnny gargano and then at that moment uh taylor knocked down shima who was dealing with a neck injury and super kicked johnny gargano and then left i felt like this was the softest turn possible it felt predictable and I, I mean, it was it was well executed, but it was just a bit of a who cares for me. Like it was so uh, telegraphed that it didn't surprise me in the slightest. The one thing I liked about it was the fact that you could play off that Swan was technically a member of both teams, and he was his conflicted uh, how conflicted he was in the situation. I thought worked very well um, because with ricochet and yoshino becoming like essentially a world one international tag team here that meant it was world one international being represented which swan was one of the members of and he was all of, already of course a ronin member whereas if it was ricochet and shima you wouldn't have had that dynamic as much um i i, I really like that i do want to ask one other thing about shima but i'll let mike give his uh thoughts on the on the turn first i thought that um at least, like, in the build-up, like, that it was very clear to me. Like, it was a very, like, weak, like, turn, but it was something that made a lot of sense with, at least with how Taylor has been and how they were kind of building that all up in that regard. But, yeah, like, it, like Rich Swan in a lot of ways, throughout the whole entire thing, with Ronan kind of falling apart, first being a member of Junction 3, then World 1 International, always was kind of, like, the more interesting person at play here and it definitely like felt like that as they close out 2012 and as they moved into or as they close out 2011 as they moved into 2012 so like i i feel like that the the swan part was something that i would have liked to see more of coming out of this and yeah i was just gonna say with regard to shima you guys uh do you think there's any possibility that with the fact that shima worked the night before and the night after and the it made so much sense for them to go with Yoshino and Ricochet as the tag champs going forward since they're in the same stable and Ricochet and Shima no longer are. Do you think maybe there's a chance that this was a booking decision more than an actual injury-based decision? 
case, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that it makes sense because we were trying to watch to see where Shima hurt his neck against the scene the night before, and I couldn't find it. So, like, he probably okay. his his neck was probably banged up, and it probably was helpful that he was able to not work three nights in a row. But yeah. and and that would be a way of getting of moving the belt onto Ricochet and Yoshino without having to do a bunch of convoluted changes. So they're probably like, okay, well, the best way to do this is for Shima to have to vacate, and he probably doesn't want to work the three shows anyway. So let's just basically do this injury angle. That wouldn't shock me in the slightest. And I think we know enough about Shima also to say that if he was proposed with the idea of wrestling against Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor, there's a good chance he's not feeling that. So maybe it was a last minute decision. Maybe he hurt his neck and said, well, I'll just, we'll just do it this way. But uh, I think there's smoke to that fire, Alan. I think that's a, a reasonable theory to have. Yeah, no, I... I... I, I can definitely see that now, especially seeing like I watched that match the night before looking to see where he hurt his neck. And unless it was just something where he came up wrong after a bump, I, I think that that is entirely possible and an actual maybe likely. And I think that is it. Is there anything else on open the ultimate gate 2012 we need to cover? I think that's it from, from Aaron. Uh, Alan, anything you wanted to touch on before we get out of here? No, nothing else. I'll give it a, a bit of a, a wrap-up uh, rating. I, I would say this is the definition of an eight out of ten show for me. Uh, a real, a real good, a real good effort. An eight out of ten show on a ten out of ten first time trip to America. I, I mean, you, you got to get a, a Miami Hurricanes baseball cap. I don't know what else can make it e- even better than that. Then also seeing Masaki Mochizuki and Akira Tozawa at, at the same time. Uh, yeah, no, there this was ma- probably... many hot, many highlights of, of that trip. It was it was a great week spent in the in the sun of Miami. And and you did the smart thing of staying into Miami Beach and just venturing out when you wanted to, which would have been like the one concern for people coming over is like you have to understand that Miami kind of sucks to get around. So you had you and Sarah had the perfect idea there and it sounded like that y'all had a delightful first trip to america for you and a great wrestlemania weekend as well uh, but eight out of ten yeah i'd say that's that's a probably where i would have the show as well case yeah i think that is a fair assessment show hit a little bit bumpy patch there with the scene and with tommy dreamer and sabu but all in all the back half of the card was so strong that i i would give it a full thumbs up And looking ahead to next week, Mercury Rising 2012, a card that featured Bobby Fish versus John Davis, Eric Cannon versus A.R. Fox, Sabu versus Sammy Callahan in a street fight, a six-way match with Shima, Chuck Taylor, Lince Dorado, Rich Swan, Samurai Del Sol, and a mysterious luchador. The scene wrestled Los Bendojos, and your two main events, the Open the Freedom Gate title match with Johnny Gargano defending against Rich Swan and low-key... Joining up with Mad Blanky, Akira Tozawa, and BB Hulk to wrestle Masaki Mochizuki, Pac, and Ricochet. I'm looking forward to getting to that as well. And Alan, thank you so much for coming aboard and doing the show. As soon as we started doing the series, and knew we were going to try to get people who were there with it. You were the first name to come to mind. I'm glad we were able to get to the point to have you on to talk about it. And I had an absolute blast. Oh, it was my pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for the invite. I have a blast listening to these shows, and it was a, a blast to, to come on here and do one with you. 
Uh, any plugs you want to throw out there, Alan, before we get out of here? Uh, not too much. Just uh, Alan4L on Twitter. Alan4L is ProRestParadise at PWTorchVIP, where you can get all the great content that is published by Wade Keller and his troops over there at the Torch, going back oh, over 30 years now um, of, of content that uh, Wade has been pumping out and um, so much great archival stuff there. I always like to plug that whenever I plug the Torch because I just love listening to weekly phone-in, Sunday morning phone-in radio shows from 1993 and stuff like that. It's just It's just a real... I, that's something I get a real kick out of. So I love that Wade has all those archived stuff there. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the latest newsletter, um, the latest Torch newsletter, I have the cover story running down the main happenings of the G1 Climax Finals weekend. And my latest ProRest Paradise show, I was really, really happy with talking about the Hall of Fame and my ballot. And, uh, yeah, I think people would uh, very much enjoy that if they check that out. And, uh, yeah, I think we're the next show coming up uh, this weekend, probably by the time you're listening to this. I'm not sure exactly when Case and Mike are releasing it, but the next show I'm planning on doing, we're going to open up the Fuji files once again. Myself and Bose Johnny, we're going to discuss some classic Masanobu Fuji matches. So, uh, yeah, lots of lots of great stuff. And, uh, oh, yeah, and uh, going to get Case on um in the very near future i'll probably uh, hit him an email in the coming days and we'll try and schedule something as i go to uh do a bit of a refresh in the coming months on my greatest wrestler ever and case has said that he is going to do the same and come along with me on the journey and we invite anyone else who wants to do it to, to please do so and uh, get thinking greatest wrestler ever mike we'd love to have you involved as well have you ever have you ever sat down and tried to put together a greatest wrestler ever list you know when i have thought about greatest wrestlers ever or when case has sprung greatest wrestler ever talk on me i've realized i get in trouble for my takes i uh, especially involving one person that's near and dear to all of our hearts misaki mochizuki it's something that i've gotten a little bit more versed especially in both Lucha Libre and in Joshi over the last few years. I feel like I feel comfortable now putting out a list there. And it's something that I might, because the next one's coming up, what, in a couple of years now? Or is it next year? That the oh, next well, the, I, I don't know if there's an official one planned or not. I just decided that, hey, this pandemic, I don't feel like watching current wrestling. And uh, next spring Smart is going to be. I mean, this that's what this is kind of is in a way. Next spring is going to be five years since the last list. So I think you know, perfect time to do uh, a refresh. You know what? I will get one ready for the spring. I will do this for the first time. Awesome. Take a pen to paper. I'm going to have my notepads. Case knows how I'm with my notebooks. I'm going to start a fresh notebook where I'm going to try to figure out my top 100 wrestlers ever. I, well, then maybe like, we can maybe we can get this triumvirate together uh, once more on, on that road and uh, do a show over on the torch and um, uh, have all three of us chatting greatest wrestler ever at some point. Uh, that sounds like an absolute blast. I'm down for it. If y'all are uh, case, anything you wanted to hit on before we get out of here? No, no, I, I have said all I need to say. I'm sure when the three of us do our greatest wrestler ever podcast, that will be a seven hour show. And I look forward to it. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> At a certain point, it'll be seven hours, and I'll be talking about random Lance Hoyt matches that I saw 
of him on the Texas indie scene. Like I, I, I'm ready to put some deep thought into this as well. So for always, you could follow the podcast at Open VoiceGate. Case is at underscore in your case. I am at Fuji Heya with two eyes like Don Fuji. Alan is at Alan4L. And that's going to do it for this time on Open the Voice Gate. Rewind and watch. Take care, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.